0: The wait is over. Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood is here. At over 450 pages, my latest book is jam-packed with information, including a large swath of scripture, all of which details the redemptive promises of his story. The Millennial Kingdom of Messiah happened precisely on schedule. You can purchase your own copy at Amazon.com or Sacred Word Publishing. Please do me a favor and drop in a review. I appreciate your support. Am I sounding better now? I know what happens is my internet provider got switched on me. I was on Verizon and it got switched to the local internet here. Can you guys all hear me clearly now? Okay, loud and clear. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, let's start from scratch. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome for the second time tonight. We just finished talking about the 7,000-year timeline deception, and we're moving on now to First Clement, which that whole talk was inspired by First Clement, by the way, and I'm really excited to Get into this book. It's a huge problem to the official narrative when you see the earliest church fathers, men like Clement, telling the congregation to obey the law of Yahuwah. Apparently, it was done away with and they didn't get the memo. Clement is one such example of of someone who obviously didn't get the memo, which is slightly embarrassing. The entire context of his letter is the obedience to Torah via the covenant, a recipe which has now been tampered with through a schism. We aren't given all the specifics of the schism, but there is an underlying context if we're paying attention. Various examples will be given throughout the Tanakh, all of which by Clement, of course, all of which highlight those who rebelled against Yah's laws. Clement's letter is written to Corinth. Shaul's ministry was heavily focused upon Corinth, and so it will be interesting to see if there is much polyanity in Clement's theology. It appears as though Shaul is part of the reason of the schism in the congregation, and we will get to that. But when we do, what really took me back is Clement's support of Shaul's ministry, especially knowing that Clement was a full-on supporter of Yahuwah's instructions and righteousness, the Torah. Usually, it was the early church fathers who used the writings of Shaul to disqualify obedience to Torah, but not Clement's. A good example of this is Ignatius of Antioch. He was totally against Torah, according to the the writings that I've read of his. That has caused me to perhaps rethink some things. Who is Shaul, and how exactly did Clement view him? Was Shaul used as a patsy by the Roman Catholic Church later on? He certainly is confusing, no doubt there, uh, Kepha tells us that. And again, the earliest schisms in the church do appear to stem off from his teachings and not the other disciples of Yehusha. from what I found so far in my research. Now, it is important to note that Clement constitutes one of the earliest writings of the church. Indeed, the Bible may not have been completed yet when Clement wrote this letter. I believe it was, mostly and that Clement was an old man at the time of it being published. He was, however, a contemporary of the apostles and knew Kepha in person, especially if you've ever read the Clementine um, homilies, or what's also known as the Recognitions of Clement. Reportedly written by Clement, travels from Rome to Judah to enter Kepha's ministry. Now, in this book, you'll see that he has written that uh, Kepha is already dead. And since my recording was a little choppy, I'll go over some of this again. I can't even remember what it was now that I was going over uh, about Clement. I can't. Oh yeah. So uh, I I studied this out using Michael Holmes' comment, uh, his translation. Michael Holmes wrote a beautiful translation of First Clement, which you can find in the, his book, The Apostolic Fathers. I think it was it came out in the '90s at some time. I cannot use this tonight because it is copyrighted. You go to the first copyright page and it says no part of this may be used or reproduced for any purpose on any website or anything unless if you're going to take a little snippet out for commentary. So bummer. can't use it. So I pulled up the JB Lightfoot edition, which probably came out in the 1800s like All of them—they're all post-mud flood. All of a sudden, all these translators—it's funny. Like nobody is translating this stuff, you know, into English in the 1700s or the 1600s or anything. It's all, you know, it's all in the 1800s. That—that's really interesting. So it'll be interesting, also, because I studied this out with Michael Holmes, and uh, we're going to be reading from Lightfoot. So this will be kind of an experiment to see if two translations agree with each other, which I think. You know, there's biases and things like that happen a lot. Anyways, let's get straight into it. Salutation. I dropped this into the—hopefully everyone has this PDF. I dropped this into the room. The church of Elohim, which sojour, sojourneth in Rome, to the church of Elohim, which sojourneth in Corinth, to them which are called and sanctified by the will of Elohim through our Adonai Yehusha Messiah. Grace to you and peace from Almighty Elohim through Yehusha Messiah, be multiplied. Interesting to note here is that in this very early theology in the church, they, uh, none of them believed that Yahushua HaMashiach was the father. Okay, nobody is advocating the Trinity here. Clearly, uh, Clements is stating that Yehusha is a separate entity from the father. Um, I just lost my notes here, guys. I'm sorry. It happened when I signed out. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to have to pull this up again. Okay. Notice here he says sojourners. This literally translates to exile or aliens temporarily residing in Rome and in Corinth. So he doesn't get really deep in his theology here in terms of, you know, the your identity as Israel versus the Gentiles. But clearly he's talking here that the people who are in these, in the city of Corinth, as well as Rome, they are just temporarily there. That's not their true citizenship, right? They're not, their true citizenship is not being Roman citizens or whatever else. Moving on. By reason, chapter one, by reason of the sudden and repeated calamities and, reverses which are befalling us, brethren, we consider that we have been somewhat tardy in giving heed to the matters of dispute that have arisen among you. Dearly, um, dearly beloved, and to the detestable and unholy sedition, so alien and strange to the elect of Elohim, which a few headstrong and self-willed persons have kindled to such a pitch of madness that your name, once revered and renowned and lovely in the sight of all men, hath been greatly reviled. For who that hath sojourned among you did not approve your most virtuous and steadfast faith? Who did not admire your sober and forbearing piety and Messiah? Who did not publish abroad your magnificent disposition of hospitality? Who did not congratulate you on your perfect and sound knowledge? For ye did all things without respect of persons, and ye walked after the ordinances of Elohim. There it is right there. Submitting yourselves to your rulers and rendering to the older men among you the honor which is their due. On the young too ye enjoined modest and seemly thoughts, and the women ye charged to perform all their duties in a blameless and seemly and pure conscience, cherishing their own husbands as is meat, and he taught them to keep in the rule of obedience and to manage the affairs of their household in seemliness seamli- uh, with all discretion. Yeah, that language was very different than what I studied out. So we see here in, in verse, chapter one, verse one, that there was a, a schism, an unholy one at that, as alien as their sojourning in Rome and Corinth. A few reckless and arrogant persons, it seems, has caused it. To the point that the church has been reviled amongst everyone, who would want, so who would want to visit it? We then see that praise to the, um, he, Clement actually gives praise to the church before the schism. They lived in accordance with the laws of Elohim, the, the ordinances, telling us that the schism and the rebel, rebels turned against it. And just so we're clear, we're, he will cover that. He will show you the examples, just like we saw. It, this is almost like uh, like Jude where, you know, Jude g- takes you through the Torah and he shows all these, these rebels, uh, Korah's rebellion and, and Cain and all these things, how they rebelled against the Most High. And he does the same thing, saying, you guys became these people. In verse, uh, okay, so let's move on, chapter two. I'm going to try to get through the first um, 24, 25 chapters tonight. There's like 60 chapters in this book. Chapter two, and, and ye were all lowly in mind and free from arrogance. Yielding rather than claiming submission, more glad to give than to receive, and content with the provisions which Elohim supplieth, and and giving heed unto his words, ye laid them up diligently in your hearts, and his sufferings were before your eyes. Thus a profound and rich peace was given to all, and an insatiable desire of doing good. An abundant outpouring also of the Ruach HaKodesh fell upon all, and being full of holy counsel, an excellent zeal, and with a pious confidence ye stretch out your hands to Almighty Elohim, supplicating him to be propitious if unwillingly ye had committed any sin. Ye had conflict day and night for all the brotherhood, that the number of his elect might be saved with fearfulness and intentness of mind. Ye were sincere and simple and free from malice One towards another. Every sedition and every schism was abominable to you. Ye mourned over the transgressions of your neighbors. Ye judged their shortcomings to be your own. Ye repented not of any will doing, but were ready unto every good work, being adorned with a most virtuous and honorable life. Ye performed all your duties in the fear of Him, the commandments. And the ordinances of Yahuwah were written on the tablets of your heart. There it is again. Now, everything that Clement just described is what I want to be. Like, this is unbelievable uh, that there was a community that was that zealous towards Yahuwah. When we think of zealousness, we think of like, you know doctrine, and you better agree with my doctrine, and you don't agree with it, and, you know, look at this, and you're not saying this name right, and that, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, all the zealousness was about, you know, taking care of their neighbors, about, you know, respecting their leaders, all this kind of stuff. It's just unbelievably amazing. And he's saying, this is past tense. This is what they used to be. Every faction and every schism was abominable. They mourned for the transgressions of their neighbors. It seems like doing good and being obedient to the laws of Elohim was important to them at one time. They were ready for every good work, is what he said. But no more. Going on to chapter 3. All glory and enlargement was given unto you, and that was fulfilled which is written, My beloved ate and drank, and was enlarged and waxed, fat, and kicked. Hence come jealousy and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and tumult, war and captivity. So this what well, well, I'll I'll talk about that in a second. So men were stirred up the mean against the honorable, the ill reputed against the highly reputed, the foolish against the wise, the young against the elder. For this cause righteousness and peace stand aloof, while each man hath forsaken the fear of Yahuwah and become pure blind in the faith of him, neither walketh in the ordinances of his commandments nor liveth according to that which becometh Messiah, but each goeth after the lust of his evil heart, seeing that they have conceived an unrighteous and ungodly jealousy, through which also death entered into the world. You guys, the first three chapters of Clement, I am so blown away and so impressed to see somebody after the apostles coming along and saying, Like, guys, it all comes down to walking according to the laws and the ordinances of Yahuwah. And you guys were living it out by the letter of the law and spiritually, the the spirit of the law as well. You know, you were taking care of everybody. You had nothing bad to say against. I mean, I am so convicted by this myself and seeing how I fall short of a lot of what Clement was talking about, how they used to be. All right. um, Okay, so we see here in verse one what he's quoting. He says, and that which is written was fulfilled. So what was fulfilled? Now, keep in mind here, I, I'm, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit tonight, that Clement, what we're reading is uh, it, it's a dude writing letters. I hate to burst your bubble. Clement, right? He was, he's a dude, loved Yahuwah. He's writing letters. I don't know if this is scripture or not. I don't have to agree with everything he has to say. So I'm not si- okay, This okay, this is what he's saying is fulfilled. This comes from Deuteronomy 32 verses 14 through 15. I'm actually reading from the Aramaic Targum, and then I'm going to read from the King James version afterwards. He gave them rich butter from the spoil of their kings and the fat of the firstlings of the sheep from the prey of their sultans. with the choice rams and goats of the flocks of Mathnen, Moshe the prophet said, If the people of Yashorel will observe the precepts of the law it is foretold that their wheat granary shall be like the kidneys of oxen and that from one bunch of grapes shall come forth a core of red wine. So what Moshe is saying, if you obey the Torah, you will receive the blessing and you will, your land will grow fat. And then what followed? Verse 14, but the house of Yasharel grew rich and wicked. They proposed much and possessed wealth and forsook the worship of Eloah who created them and provoked them to anger who redeemed them. And then this is how the King James put it. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxed and fat. Thou art grown thick. Thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, or Elohim, which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. That's a really interesting verse right there, actually. Lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. So what... I guess I do agree with Clement. What he's saying is that that the Church of Corinth isn't a literal fulfillment of that verse, in, you know, prophetically, but it's the cycle, right? Like, we see these churches—the the, the Church of Philadelphia, for example, that is just—it's an amazing church, they escape the persecution, and then what happens next? The next generation comes, they're fat, they're spoiled, they no longer are depending on, dependent on Yah, they, they slip back into sin. And that's what he's saying. You guys were fat. You're you're no longer. In verse two, let's see what he says in verse two here. Um, oh, hence come jealousy and envy, strife and sedition, persecution, tumult war and captivity. So I actually think what he's describing there is the the Roman War of the 60s leading up to 70 AD when it came to an end. Um, That this church was this amazing church, and then all of a sudden, tumult came, war, captivity, and they started arguing amongst themselves. They started bickering, Um, and I think we're kind of writing in the aftermath of that. And then, of course, he says, Neither walking according to the laws of his commandments, nor living in accordance with his duty towards Messiah. Uh, For this reason, death entered the world. He's actually quoting here from Wisdom of Solomon 2, verse 24, which says, But by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who are allied with him experience it. We will find here that Clement uh, seems to be quoting from the the Greek Septuagint time and again. All right, let's move on to chapter 4. But of course, just pointing out once again, he is laying down the foundation of his argument that, guys— You know, you're supposed to be obeying the—if you want to live a righteous, holy life that is pleasing to Yah, you obey His laws and ordinances. And I don't know how I missed that my whole life. Here, Clements is saying it. It's amazing. Chapter 4. He's not going to talk about it too much from this point on. He's made his case. For so it is written, and it came to pass after certain days that Cain brought of the fruits of the earth a sacrifice unto Elohim, and Abel he also brought of the first things of the sheep and of their fatness. And Elohim looked upon Abel and upon his gifts. But unto Cain and unto his sacrifices he gave no heed. And Cain sorrowed exceedingly, and his countenance fell. And Elohim said unto Cain, Wherefore art thou very sorrowful, and wherefore did thy countenance fall? If thou hast offered aright, and hast not divided all right, didst thou not sin? Hold thy peace, Until thee shall he turn, and, until, and thou shalt rule over him. Um, and then you see this here. This last phrase has also been translated. Be at peace. Thine offering returns thyself, and thou shalt again possess it. And Cain said unto Abel, his brother, let us go over into the plain. And it came to pass, while they were in the plain, that Cain arose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Ye see, brethren, jealousy and envy wrought a brother's murder. By reason of jealousy, our father Yaakov Ran away from the face of Esau, his brother. So it's kind of interesting here that he's writing to a congregation that they agree that Yaakov is their father. He's not somebody else's father, he's their father, which can only mean they're coming from Israel. Jealousy caused Yosef to be persecuted even into death and to come even into bondage. Jealousy compelled Moshe to flee from the face of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. While it was said to him him by his own countrymen, Who made thee a judge over a decider over us? Wouldst thou slay me, even as yesterday thou slewest the Egyptian? By reason of jealousy, Aaron and Miriam were lodged outside the camp. Jealousy brought Dathan and Abiram, this is a Korah's rebellion, down alive into Hades, or Sheol, because they made sedition against Moshe, the servant of Elohim. By reason of jealousy, David was envied not only by the Philistines, but was persecuted also by Shaul, king of Yashereel. All right, so these are everything he's going over here is examples of lawlessness, right? These these are all breaking Torah and and rebellion, and this is how he's, just like Jude equated in his letter, And, and I do want to point out here that everyone mentioned here is part of the family story, going back, not just to, you know, the sons of Adam, obviously, but sons of Abraham, of Yitschak, and Yaakov, and Yosef, and, you know, the 12 patriarchs, and he's saying they are our fathers, right? So he's talking about their, you know, this is our story. If, if, we, ha- um, if we are obeying the commands, and Yahusha is our Messiah, these are our descendants as well. All right, this is where it gets really interesting, chapter 5, now, keep in mind here, the theme of this book is schisms and how jealousy, the, the, he's claiming that the root of these schisms is jealousy, jealousy of different leaders, of what they're teaching and what they're not teaching and the fame they get, and all that kind of stuff. All right. But to pass from the examples of ancient days, let us come to those champions who lived nearest to our time. Let us set before us the noble examples which belong to our generation. So he's saying here that he is the generation of the apostles. It would almost, I would almost be like, it would be like talking about uh, if an old man, I hate to date some of you, but if you were alive in the 60s, but it'd be like, we're talking about the Beatles, you know, the 60s or, you know. I don't know, Elton John in the 70s, right? Like it happened like 40 years ago, whatever, but it's like this generation. By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Kepha, Peter, who by reason of unrighteous jealousy endured not, one, not um, endure, endured not one, but many labors. And thus, having borne his testimony, went to his appointed place of glory. By reason of jealousy and strife, there he is, Shaul. By his example, point out the prize of patient endurance. After that, he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had preached in the East and in the West. That's interesting. He won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness into the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the West. I should say that's even more interesting, the farthest bounds of the West. And when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went into the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patience, endurance. All right. So he's doing a couple things here. He's saying Peter and Paul were killed because of jealousy from those who practice lawlessness. Now, was the schism possibly over these two? Why are Peter and Paul always compared to one another? Was Paul actually pro-Torah? And there was jealousy and strife from the lawless. This has caused me to rethink much on Paul. According to, according to Clement, he's saying whoever the Shaul guy is, um, he, can, he glosses over a lot. But there clearly seemed to be, and all my research has pointed to this, that people in the first century were like, I follow Peter. And I was like, well, I follow Paul. It's like, well, your Paul is disobedient to my Peter. Well, your Peter doesn't get my Paul. And, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what's happening, but I think he's glossing over an issue here. And he's trying to say, look, guys, we need to be following the instructions of Yah, but they were both teachers of this. That's what I think he's saying. So if you want to know where I'm at, here it is, All right? This is, I, I'm, I'm kind of taking a middle ground here, which is going to upset everybody. If, if you guys think I'm selling out, I'm actually probably gonna be upsetting both sides of the aisle. Paul was a dude. He was a man. He was a dude writing letters. Was he always right? No, he wasn't. And that's okay, because he was a dude writing letters, just like Clement was writing letters. So let me, let me tell you guys where I'm at. When we talk about scripture, I actually agree with Paul's um, um, definition of what constitutes scripture. Scripture is Holy Spirit breathe. All right? So when I read Torah, uh, I believe that that is Yahuwah speaking to Moshe and he's writing it down. When I see the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, when I see them writing about these visions that they have, if if it's not the Holy Spirit uh, telling them this, then there's some problems because now you have dudes making up these visions. I also hold the same thing with Revelation, that you have your and John. He is being taken in visions to heaven, and he's reporting on stuff. I hope that that spirit, uh, Holy Spirit uh, breathe. When it comes to the letters of James and Jude, Peter, Paul, I, I, they're letters. They're, they were literally guys sitting down and writing letters, just like I write to you guys a lot. I write these articles. I'm a guy writing le- uh, letters, and I might be right or wrong, all right? So here's the problem, as I see. I'm going to give you guys an analogy, uh, a Star Wars analogy. I for, Forgive me for anyone who doesn't like Star Wars, but uh, in 1977, George Lucas releases a movie. He just, it's called Star Wars. That's all it's called. It's not Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It didn't even have a number back then. It was just Star Wars. It was a movie. It was a big hit. In that movie, he alluded to future events and past events. And when he got around to writing the sequel, uh, he it was a huge hit. So let's let, let's make a sequel. He got really creative, and he's like. I think there were three movies that happened beforehand. And there are these, he, you know, he outlined 12 movies and, and he's like, okay, so this is going to be episode five and we just released four. And then like, you know, episodes one through three is like Macbeth from Shakespeare. We haven't really written that or thought through it, but it's just like, we'll just call it Macbeth for now. And then, you know, and so he titles it. So in the eighties, you know, as of 1983, we had the star Wars trilogy. It was episode four through six. Now afterwards, he released these Ewok movies, and they were, they were awful. They were awful movies. But it's okay because they weren't Episode Seven or Eight or Nine or Ten. It was just movies that happened to be about Star Wars. Well, he, you get back, uh, you go up to 1999. He releases Episode One. All of a sudden, you hear all these people. He raped my childhood. This is so awful. Why? Because it's canon, baby. It's Episodes One through Three and Four through Six and Seven through Nine. It's canon. You can't take that away. It's a number. Well, we have the same thing with, 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 with this canon. We have 66 books, baby. Rome put them together for us, and this is, you know, you can't miss with the formula. Anything in here, it has to be Holy Spirit-breathed. You know, it, it, Paul, Peter, so if you hear me saying, you know what, I, I, I disagree with this one thing Paul said. You know, people start flipping out and going, what, what, are you, what are you saying, Noel? You don't believe scripture and all this kind of stuff? It's like, no, I think he was a guy writing letters, and he's entitled to be wrong about things. That's where I'm at. Um, and when you get to that position, okay, I want to, uh, when you get to that position and you realize that these are just letters, you, you, you're, not, you're not threatened by them anymore. It's just like, it, it, it's like literally a guy who had a, a ministry who was following Messiah and, um, you know, he was clearly at conflict with the apostles. We see that in Galatians. Uh, with peter and james and you know we can get into all that but that's what i think is happening with clements i think he's saying look there, there's this schism um we know that he was confusing peter says so a lot of people falling out and he's trying to it's almost like a lot of the torah leaders today they're like look i know paul's confusing um uh, but let's try to work this make this relationship work all right i, I kind of rambled a lot there hopefully you guys can understand that I think that's what he's doing all right so um what else did i want to see on chapter five here um oh yeah and so uh, because clement is giving him such a good repute here again this uh, you see the same thing with uh polycarp polycarp was apparently a disciple of Yochanan, uh the apostle john he gives uh shaul a good report too and this really makes me wonder and step back and go I don't know. Maybe I've never met the real Shaul. I I don't know who this guy is. Maybe he really was a patsy for Rome. I don't know, guys. Um, I just, I see a very, uh, there's, you know, there's, we're always told to be put into a box. Like, you're you're pro-Paul, you're against Paul, and you have to be one or the other. I don't even know anymore, because I'm seeing a very different picture emerge when I read these early texts. All right, where was I? I think I'm on chapter six now. And he will actually bring up um, he will bring up Shao again. That's the last time we're going to meet Peter. But it's interesting. He's comparing the two. Notice he said they both died. And James, he doesn't bring up James. James, Yaakov is probably dead by this time. But guess what, guys? Yaakov was not the cause of the schisms. Kepha and Shaul were. So he's trying to unite the two. All right. Chapter six. Unto these men of holy lives. So he's talking about um, Kepha and Shao, but also others of the apostles was gathered a vast multitude of the elect who, through many indignities and tortures, being the victims of jealousy—there's a theme again, victims of jealousy—a set of brave example among ourselves. And I think what he's saying here is that Shaul had a very successful ministry, right? He went to a lot of churches. By the time he got to Rome, if you read Romans, the church was already established through Paul's disciples. His own disciples had gone on and started a church there in Rome, which Clement is a part of. He's the bishop of this church. Um, and so, you know, it, there's there's just a lot of jealousy going around. That's what Clement is claiming. By reason of jealousy, women being persecuted after they had suffered cruel and, and unholy insults as Danaids and Durke, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, safely reached the goal in the race of faith and received a noble reward Feeble though they were in body. Jealousy hath estranged wives from their husbands and changed the saying of our father, Adam. This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Jealousy and strife have overthrown great cities and uprooted great nations. All right, now I've really had a lot of questions about chapter six. Who is who is Denades and Durke? Well, I had to look this up. He's referring to officially, well, actually unofficially, but initially to pagan Greek and Roman mythology. And I was asking myself, why is Clement referring to a pagan mythology when speaking about women of the faith, particularly in Rome? Well, in ancient mytho- in ancient mythology, um, oh, Let me just skip all this here. All right. This is basically what was happening. The Danaids were a group of women who... Let me see if i could put this picture in here um this is a picture of the the story is that there's like 70 of these women the daughters of this dude they all marry this guy and one night uh their husbands and they all murder them on their nights they're they're villainous and so many of the christian women were being referred to them in the propaganda Rome is saying that women; these women are like because they are not worshiping Caesar, they are like these women who are murdering their husbands, and they need to be treated accordingly. According to the um, the mythology of these women, they were sentenced to go to Sheol and carry water for the rest of their lo- for the rest of eternity. And these jars had like holes in them, and the water would pour out, so they could never actually complete their task. And so what was happening is that many. it is suggested that many of these women, these Christian women who were being captured and uh, brought to the arena, they were being raped by by their captors, by the elites, anyone who—they were basically handed over to these elites in these situations and given a free night pass with them before they were executed. And then we see the— was it Dirk out, whatever? And I'm gonna put you in, uh, give another picture here. Uh, here's an illustration. I'm sorry if there is nudity in this. You know, all paintings from the past all have a naked woman, but it's actually this is pretty. Um, I think legitimate to what was happening is that these these women would be tied up to a bull, um, and it plays out with the Greek and Roman mythology again, and they would replay the story. Uh, they would tie the woman naked to a bowl for the spectacle of the crowds and the bull would trample them to death i mean it was a horrible gruesome death and while the, cheer, while the crowd cheers and this is what clement is talking about he's saying because of jealousy um, that these women are killed in these gruesome ways because of their love for elohim let's see what else i have on this um, here's just another picture here you see this that this this is a much older picture here, and this was going on, you know, all during that time. It was really horrible, and they would reenact it. So they would take, uh, they would take Christians and and reenact these pagan plays, you know, and as as lessons as to why you don't uh, ditch their gods, their elohim. Oh, I also forgot I wanted to bring up. It's interesting that Clement did talk about how Shaul went to the furthest extremities of the West. I don't know what that means. Did that mean he went to America? According to um, traditions, Shaul ended up in England, merry old England, which is interesting because... I've been doing a lot of research on this, and, you know, that's where Joseph of Arimathea and Mary ended up, and Philip, the the apostle Philip ended up as well. But apparently Paul went there, and that's what Clement's saying in the first century, that Shaul went to the furthest uh, extremities of the West. So that's a little interesting historical reference there. All right, moving on with chapter 7. I hope you guys are enjoying this tonight. I'm kind of rambling a little bit and kind of jumping around, but... um, Um, I'm not used to these studies just by myself, obviously, but hopefully you guys are finding this informative. Chapter seven, these things, dearly beloved, we write not only as admonishing you, but also as putting ourselves in remembrance for we are in the same list and the same contest awaiteth us. I think he's talking here about, um, you know, their fates that they all have a very uncertain fate. They're, they're all, their names have been taken down. It's almost like conspiracy theorists today. Like we, like we all talk about it, right? Our FBI agent and all that stuff. And they, they know who we are and that kind of stuff. Wherefore, let us forsake idle and vain thoughts, and let us conform to the glorious and venerable rule which hath been handed down to us. And let us see what is good and what is pleasant and what is acceptable in the sight of him that made us. Let us fix our eyes on the blood of Messiah and understand how precious it is unto his Father, because being shed for our salvation, at one for the whole world, the grace of repentance. Let us review all the generations in turn and learn how, from generation to generation, the master uh, have given a place for repentance and to them the desire to turn to him. Noah preached repentance, and they that observed were saved. Which is kind of strange, because nobody really repented. But I guess the opportunity was there for them to repent. Jonah or Jonah preached destruction to the men of Nineveh, but they, repenting of their sins, so they did repent, obtained pardon of Elohim by their supplications and received salvation, albeit they were aliens from Elohim. This is a big part of why, you know, I stress that 70 AD was not the beginning beginning of the middle of the kingdom. That was a judgment against Yehuda. He was still giving time for repentance as the apostles went out to the, the Gentile nations to get to bringing in Israel. He was given more time before the kingdom was brought in. The ministers of the grace of El, Oh, chapter eight. The ministers of the grace of Elohim through the Ruach Hakodesh spake concerning repentance. Yea, and the Master of the Universe Himself spake concerning repentance with an oath, for as I live, saith Yahuwah, I desire not the death of the sinner so much as his repentance. And he added also a merciful judgment. Repent ye, O house of Yashereel, of your iniquity. Say unto the sons of my people, though your sins reach from the earth unto, even unto the heaven, and though they be redder than scarlet and blacker than sackcloth, and ye turn unto me with your whole heart and say, Father, I will give ear unto you as unto a holy people. And in another place, he saith on the wise, Wash, be ye clean, put away your iniquities from your souls, out of my sight. Cease from your iniquities, learn to do good, seek out judgment, defend him that is wronged, give judgment for the orphan, and execute righteousness for the widow. And come and let us reason together, save he. And through your sins, be as crimson. I will make them white as snow, and though they be as scarlet, I will make them white as wool. And if ye be willing and will hearken unto me, ye shall eat the good things of the earth. But if ye be not willing, neither hearken unto me, a sword shall devour you. For the mouth of Yahuwah hath spoken these things. Seeing then that he desireth all his beloved to be partakers of repentance, he confirmed it by an act of his almighty will. All right, so let's see what he's quoting from right here. Um, he's referring. He's referring initially to Ezekiel chapter thirty-three verse eleven, when he, when Ezekiel writes, saying to them, "As I live, saith Yahuwah Elohim, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Yasharel?" And then we see him uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter one verses sixteen through twenty, which says, "Wash yourselves." Make yourselves clean. There's a baptism verse right there. Put away the evils of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says Yahuwah. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of Yahuwah has spoken. And this is, (laughs) so one of the things I, I get from people all the time is they're like, Noel, you advocate the Torah. Well, if you try to obey the Torah, you're lost in your sins because, you know, the temple is done away with and you have no sacrifice for your sins. Well, what, what most Christianity doesn't seem to understand or appreciate is the fact that in Torah, there is no um, sacrifice for conscious sin. I dare you to look it up. Look through there. Look through Leviticus. Go through there and look for anything that is a sacrifice for conscious sin. You commit adultery, you murder, you do any of those things on a physical or spiritual level. It's not there. That's because Yahuwah has Always desired us to repent of our sins. He says so in Torah. He says so all through the prophets. That is what Clement is directing us to. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires us to repent of our sins, confess our sins, turn from them, stop committing adultery. You know, stop murdering, stop hating your brother. As you, you see here, like we we get so caught up in this like theological realm of we have to have the right understanding. It's like no, no, no. Look, look, take care of the widows. Take care of the orphans. That's what it says right here. You know, take care of your neighbor. Love everybody. Moving on, chapter nine. Wherefore, let us be obedient unto his excellent and glorious will and presenting ourselves as suppliants of his mercy and goodness. Let us fall down before him and betake ourselves unto his compassions, forsaking the vain toil and the strife and the jealousy which leadeth unto death. Let us fix our eyes on them that ministered perfectly unto his excellent glory. Let us set before us Enoch, who, being found righteous in obedience, was translated, and his death was not found. Kind of interesting here. He didn't say that Enoch didn't die. A lot of these people, they, they, they didn't say Enoch didn't die. It's just that he was translated. Nobody knew what happened to them. Noah, being found faithful by his ministration, preached. Regeneration into the world. And through him the master saved the living creatures that entered into the ark in, in Concord. So it's kind of like like it's kind of funny that <laughs> he's saying that the animals were obedient. There were these animals that were actually obedient to what Yah told them to do, and they got on the ark. If they didn't, they died. No people did, but the animals were. That's kind of interesting. All right, chapter 10. Abraham, who was called the friend was found faithful, and that he rendered obedience unto the words of Elohim. He, through obedience, went forth from his land, and from his kindred, and from his father's house, that leaving a scanty land, and a feeble kindred, and a mean house, he might inherit the promises of Elohim. For he saith unto him, go forth from thy land and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land which I shall show thee, and I will make thee into a great nation, and I will bless thee and will magnify thy name, and thou shalt be blessed, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the tribes of the earth be blessed. Which is a magnificent plan of salvation right there. And again, when he was parted from Lot, Elohim said unto him, Look up with thine eyes, and behold from the place well, where thou art, now art, unto the north and the south and the sunrise and the sea, for all the land which thou seest. I will give it unto thee and to thy seed forever, and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. If any man can count the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be counted. And again, he saith, Elohim led Abraham forth and said unto him, Look up into the heaven and count the stars, and see whether thou canst number them. So shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed Elohim, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. For his faith and hospitality, a son was given unto him in old age. And by obedience, he offered him a sacrifice unto Elohim on one of the mountains which he showed him. Now, I want to point out what he's doing here. We started out this letter where he said, uh, Look, you guys... You guys used to understand all this. You got this. You dug into the scriptures. You followed this, and something happened. You got fat. You got rich. You decided to fall away. And he doesn't, like, it's not like this harsh rebuke. Like, Clement is very gentle. He's a gentle old man as he's writing these people. And he's, again, I'll use the word gentle. He's gently taking them through the story. He's saying right here, this is, like, if you believe this, this is where you come from, from Abraham. This is his story. This is the story of all these people, of Noah, of Enoch, of Yitzhak, and Abraham, and Yaakov. And, you know, let's be like these people, and not like the rebels who rebelled against the law. Chapter 11. For his hospitality and godliness, Lot was saved from Sodom, when all the country round about was judged by fire and brimstone the master having thus foreshown that he forsaketh not them which set their hope on him, but appointeth unto punishment and torment them which swerve aside. For when his wife had gone forth with him, being otherwise minded and not in accord, she was appointed for a sign hereunto, so that she became a pillar of salt unto this day. Make a a mental note of that, bookmark that that it might be known unto all men that they which are double-minded and they which doubt concerning the power of Elohim are set for a judgment and for a token unto all generations. Now, he says that until the day he is writing this letter, you can can go and see the pillar of of Lot's wife. Now, I would argue that she doesn't exist anymore. So what, what gives? There are, If you go there to Qumran, they'll say, "Oh, this uh, there's like this giant boulder." They say it's like a giant wife, and you know she was a giantess apparently. I no, I don't. I don't uh, believe that. This is how Jasher describes it. So, uh, Jasher, which means like the Book of the Just, it was written uh, right around the time, obviously, right before Joshua or Yahushua was written, because it quotes from this book, and this is how it describes it. And when she looked back, being Lot's wife she became a pillar of salt. And it is yet in that place unto this day. But then pay attention to this. And the oxen, which stood in that place daily, licked up the salt to the extremities of their feet. And in the morning, it would spring forth afresh. And they again licked it up unto this day. So the writer of Jasher or the writers of Jasher are saying that you can go there to this day when it was written and you, you can take your cattle there and the cattle can lick up Lot's wife. And uh, she'll be gone, but come back in the morning and she'll be there again. Isn't that interesting? Now, my theory on this is that that is further proof of a reset. I mean, keep in mind, like, people weren't gullible back then. You write a book and claim that if you go to this location, you will find Lot's wife there. You figure people would take him up on that. And be like, okay, I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna look for Lot's wife. I'm gonna take my cattle because they need a salt lick and I can't afford one and I'm gonna go there. And if they didn't find one, they're like, wait a second. Uh, I don't buy this book. This is further evidence that this is not a medieval forgery, in my, in my opinion. Uh, but what I think happened is the reset. I think uh, the millennial kingdom happened and it's not in effect anymore. I think that's what happened. All right, moving on to cha- uh, chapter 13. Let us, therefore, be lowly-minded, brethren, laying aside all arrogance and conceit and folly and anger. And let us do that which is written, for the Ruach saith, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong in his strength, neither the rich in his riches, but he that boasteth, let him boast in Yahuwah, that he may seek him out, and do judgment, and righteousness, most of all, remembering the words of Yahuwah, um, or I, that's actually a misprint. That should be probably Adonai. Adonai, Yahusha, when he spake, teaching forbearance and long-suffering. For thus he spake, have mercy, that ye may receive mercy. Forgive, that it might be forgiven to you. As ye do, so shall it be done to you. As ye give, so shall it be given unto you. As ye judge, so shall ye be judged; as ye show kindness, so shall kindness be shown unto you. With what measure ye um, meet, it shall be measured withal to you. Some of this language is eighteen hundreds; is you know, little, little old fashioned. With this commandment and these precepts, let us confirm ourselves that we may walk in obedience to His hallowed words, with lowliness of mind. For the holy word saith, upon whom shall I look? Save upon him that is gentle and quiet and feareth mine oracles. Oracles being the prophets. Let's see if I have any notes on this. Uh, he's quoting here from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. So I just, I love this, how he, he's like, he's quoting from the prophets. He's quoting from Torah. This is just awesome stuff. Taking people through the story. Thus saith uh, Yahuwah, according to Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. But not the So it's interesting, he actually says the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is the one saying this. But here in Jeremiah, it's accrediting it to the Lord, Yahuwah. That's kind of interesting. Um, so another interesting quote here is that Clement quotes from Messiah a quote that is older than any of the Gospels we have. He is actually, uh, to my understanding, he is not quoting any of the four Gospels. He is quoting from a source which we no longer have. This happened a lot with the the, uh, Apostolic Fathers. They were quoting from sources that, um, you know, didn't end up uh, with with what Rome approved in the end. So that's interesting. I mean, it's right in line with his teachings, but it's not a direct quote from anything we have. Actually, if you read 2nd Clement, uh, he... (laughs) 2nd Clement's awesome, because he starts quoting from the Gospel of Thomas. So, chapter 14... Actually, here's another one. Uh, he quotes from Isaiah 66, uh, verse 2, which I'm not going to go through that whole chapter. But if you guys are familiar with Isaiah 66, it's the last chapter of Isaiah. And it is a straight in times chapter, like when he comes with fire and sets up his kingdom. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, that's, it's a few pages. I'm not going to read from that whole chapter. We don't have enough time tonight. All right, we're on to chapter 14. I'm hoping to make it to 24 tonight. So let's keep going. Therefore, it is right and proper, brethren, that we should be obedient unto Elohim, rather than following those who, in arrogance and unruliness, have set themselves up as leaders in abominable jealousy. So now he's accrediting those who are jealous and creating these schisms to be abominable. And, you know, what is abominable, right? It's like, we can look through Torah, all the different things, you know, eat pork, right? You know, you're free to eat that now. You're free to, you know, break the Sabbath or whatever, right? You're free from all that stuff. This is creating the schisms. For we shall bring upon us no uncommon harm, but rather great peril if we surrender ourselves recklessly to the purposes of men who launch out into strife and seditions so as to estrange us. From what is right and that is exactly what happens we if we have all woken up to this we were estranged from what is right we were we were in the wrong side i'll speak for myself i was on the wrong side of the schism i was on the side that had done away with all this exactly what isaiah chapter 66 talks about that he just quoted from which brings about this wrath you know like the, the 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 pig mice eaters and all that kind of stuff um Verse three, let us be good one towards another according to the compassion and sweetness of him that made us. For it is written, he's quoting from a prophet again. The good shall be dwellers in the land and the innocent shall be left on it. But they that transgress shall be destroyed, shall be destroyed utterly from it. And again, he saith, I saw the ungodly lifted up on high and exalted as the cedars of Lebanon, and I passed by, and behold, he was not, and sought out his place, and I found it not. Keep innocence, and behold, uprightness; brightness, for there is a remnant for the peaceful man. What he has just said here, again, I believe there's, there's a possibility that this was written before 70 AD. We will get to it next time. You'll see what I mean. Because he actually talks about the temple in present tense, which is a little confusing. Um. But he does, he does date this by saying that Paul and, uh, and uh, who else Kifa are dead by this point. They died around 64, 65. So it could have been written between 65 and 70 when the war is raging. I'm not sure. But look at what he's saying here. He's saying that, that the, the, those who rebel against the ordinances against Torah, who create schisms in their jealousy, they will be removed from the land. Now, he's here, he's a uh, sojourner, he's not in the land, but he's saying that those who keep it are going to remain in the land. Well, what happens? Because in 70 AD, it it didn't quite end up that way. Um, The church, you know, commentators will say that the church in Jerusalem mysteriously disappeared and never came back. When it did reappear, it it reappeared later as, as like a totally other sect. It wasn't the same. And this is where I have advocated and I've stated that I think when Yehusha said he is coming back for his disciples, for them, for that generation, he literally came back for them. And he, he didn't, he kind of, yeah, he removed them from the land, but he took them to paradise. They weren't kicked out. They weren't removed from the kingdom. They were taken to a better place. Whereas, uh, you know, Yehuda was, you know, destroyed. So... Um so again, I don't know if this is dated before seventy day or afterwards. Some of this I read some of this and I think, well, maybe it's beforehand. Therefore, let us cleave unto them that practice peace with godliness, and unto them that desire peace with uh, dissimulation. For he saith in a certain place, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hmm, whatever he's quoting. Oh, he's quoting from Isaiah again. This is a great verse. Uh, <laughs> uh, wherefore Yahuwah, man, this guy so didn't get the memo that the Torah was done away with, uh, wherefore Yahuwah said for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, who is this describing and with their lips do honor me. They have removed their heart far from me and their fear is toward, uh, their fear toward me is directed towards is taught by the precept of men. So now men are teaching um, how they are to fear Yahuwah instead of how Yahuwah said we are to fear him. And that's what uh, Clement is pointing back to this church. And again, they, okay, And again, he saith, they loved him with their mouth and with their tongue, they lied unto him, and their heart was not upright with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. There it is again. For this cause, let the deceitful lips be made dumb, which speak iniquity against the righteous. And again, may Yahuwah utterly destroy all the deceitful lips, the people of the schism. It, it, it's making it so clear that this schism, guys, is about a huge movement where people were breaking away from the law. That's undeniable. Like that that started very early on. The tongue that speaketh proud things, even then to say, let us magnify our tongue. Our lips are our own. Who is Adonai over us? For the misery of the needy And for the groaning of the poor, I will now arise, say Yahuwah. I will set him in safety. I will deal boldly by him. So what is it that causes Yahuwah to rise up from his throne and roll up his sleeves, dealing with the cries that reach heaven from the poor and the needy? So that tells us that those people are really important to him. Let's see what else is he quoting in here. Uh, he's he's referencing some psalm, Psalm sixty-two, four. I'll read this really quickly. This is what it says: "How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only, they only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. How would you curse inwardly? I guess by your actions." psalm 78 says nevertheless they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues for their heart was not right with him neither were they steadfast in his covenant um and that that last verse there really explains that their heart was not right with him why they were not steadfast in his covenant all right let's see what are we on chapter i think we're on chapter 16 now yeah for messiah is with them that are lowly of mind not with them that exalt themselves over the flock. Hmm. The scepter of the majesty of Elohim, even our Adonai Yehusha Messiah, came not in the pomp of arrogance or of pride, though he might have done so, but in lowliness of mind. So what he's saying, he could have come in arrogance and pride, I guess, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but he didn't, he said. He said, he came in lowliness of mind, according as the Ruach HaKodesh spake concerning him. For he saith, Adonai, who believed our report? He's going to quote from Isaiah 53 now. So just so you know, the rest of this chapter, he's just reading from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Who believed our report? And to whom was the arm of Yahuwah revealed? We announced him in his presence. As a child was he, as a root in a thirsty ground. There is no form in him, neither glory. And we beheld him, and he had no form nor comeliness, but his form was mean lacking more than the form of men. He was a man of stripes and of toil, and knowing how to bear infirmity, for his face is turned away. He was dishonored and held of no account. He beareth our sins and suffereth pain for our sakes, and we accounted him to be in toil and in stripes and in affliction. And he was wounded for our sins and hath been afflicted for our iniquities, the chastisements of our peace is upon him. With his bruises we are healed." What a beautiful chapter. We all went astray like sheep. That is true, certainly of me. Each man went astray in his own path. And Yahuwah delivered him over for our sins. And he openeth not his mouth because he is afflicted. As a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearer is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. His generation, who shall declare? For his life is taken away from the earth. For the iniquities of my people, he is come to death, and I will give the wicked for his burial, and the rich for his death. For he wrought no iniquity, neither was guile found in his mouth, and Yahuwah did not desire to cleanse him from his stripes. If ye offer for sin, your soul shall see um, a long lived seed. And Yahuwah desireth to take away from the toil of his soul, to show him light, and to mold him with understanding, to justify a just one that is a good servant unto many, and he shall bear their sins. Therefore he shall inherit many, and shall divide the spoils of the strong, because his soul was delivered unto death, and he was reckoned unto the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and for their sins was he delivered up. And again he himself saith, But I am a worm. And so now he's quoting from. Um, let me look here. What he's quoting from? Oh, I don't
1: have it. Hmm. He's quoting from a uh,
0: psalm. Oh, one of the psalms. Okay. Again, he saith, uh, he himself so saith, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and an outcast of the people. All they that beheld me mocked at me. They spake with their lips. They, wa- they wagged their heads saying, He hoped on Yahuwah, let him deliver him, or let him save him, for he desireth him. Which is what the people were actually saying uh, when he was hanging from the tree, interestingly enough. You see, dearly beloved, what is the pattern that hath been given unto us? For if Yahuwah was thus lowly of mind, what should we do, who through him have been brought under the yoke of his grace? That, I mean, and this is this is coming from a generation of people who were like, you know, we all talk about the persecution that's come, it hasn't come, guys. Like these are people who were literally I mean, he already talked about how they were literally been, had been drug off to the circus. I don't think the Colosseum had been built by this time, but Nero had his circus in Rome and they were doing all sorts of terrible things in there. Chapter 17, let us be imitators also of them which went about in goatskins and sheepskins, preaching the coming of Messiah. We mean Eliahu and Elisha, and likewise uh, Ezekiel, the prophets, and he doesn't mention John the Baptist, but he was another one. And besides them, those men also that obtained a good report. Abraham obtained an exceeding good report and was called the friend of Elohim. And looking steadfastly on the glory of Elohim, he saith in lowliness of mind, but I am dust and ashes, moreover concerning Yav, um, or Job. Also it is thus written, and jo- Job was righteous and unblameable, one that was true and honored Elohim and abstained from all evil. So, you know, talking about Pollyanity here, Clement is, is, in my opinion, contrasting that where you go into Christianity, they say, everyone is... Uh, there is no one righteous, no, not one, which is quoting from Psalms, but it's, a mis- it's actually uh, the psalmist is actually writing about the Goyim, the Gentiles. Uh, he's not actually writing about the righteous when he says there is no one righteous. And here we see Clement in agreement with that. He's saying there were righteous people. There were people who were blameless. He says so. Job was blameless. That's something we should all aspire to be, that we too can be blameless in the face of accusation from Hasatan. Okay, where was I? Uh, he was righteous and unblameable, all right? Hasatan was not able to accuse him. One that was true and honored Elohim and abstained from all evil. Yet he himself accuseth himself, saying, No man um, from filth, no, not, uh, man, some of this is just so wordy. No, not though his life be but for a day. Okay, Moshe was called faithful in all his house. And through his ministration, Elohim judged Egypt with the plagues and the torments which befell them. Albeit also, though greatly glorified, yet spake no proud words, but said, when an oracle was given to him at the bush, who am I that thou sendest me? Moshe, basically, Moshe did not see himself worthy, even though he's saying that Yah used him to be his vessel of judgment on the people nay i am feeble of speech and slow of tongue and again he saith but i am smoked from the pot (laughs) hopefully he didn't say i'm a pot smoker but (laughs) i am smoked from the pot all right we'll take this a few more chapters tonight unfortunately i just looked and i had notes all the way up to 25 and they're gone now like it, 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 it like literally the dog ate my homework stuff it really happens to me all the time it's awful but I'll have to, we'll have to make a go at it anyways. Chapter 18. But what must we say of David that obtained a good report of whom Elohim said, I have found a man after my heart, David, son of uh, Jesse or Yeshe. With eternal mercy have I anointed him. Yet he too saith unto Elohim, have mercy upon me, O Elohim, according to thy great mercy and according to the multitude of thy compassions blot out uh, mine iniquity. And we know, of course, that David did commit sin. Wash me yet more from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge mine iniquity and my sin is ever before me. And this is like, this is what Y'all wants from us. He wants us to repent, turn from our sins. Now, David, you know, he lost a baby, uh, the first baby with Bathsheba. The second baby, Solomon, became king. Uh, but. You know there was problems. You know Absalom repelled, rebelled. That was due to David's sin originally, and eventually, you know the divide, the kingdom was divided, uh, but not for a couple of generations for the sake of David because he still was he had a heart for Elohim. But you know that's to say that there's still consequence to our sin. Um, can't ever say that there's not. Let's see where was I? Uh, Yet he too saith, and Elohim have mercy upon me. Okay, Blot out my not out, uh, blot out my iniquity. Verse three, wash me yet more from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge mine iniquity and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only did I sin. And I wrought evil in thine sight that thou mayest be justified in thy words and mayest conquer in thy pleading. For behold, in iniquities was I conceived and in sins did my mother bear me. For behold, thou hast loved truth. The dark and hidden things of thy wisdom hast thou shown unto me. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall become whiter than snow. Thou shalt make me to hear of joy and gladness. The bones which have been humbled shall rejoice. Turn away thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Make a clean heart with me, O Elohim, and renew a right spirit in mine inmost parts. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Ruach HaKodesh from me. What a beautiful prayer. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and strengthen me with a princely spirit. I will teach sinners thy ways, and godless men shall be converted unto thee. What another beautiful prayer. Deliver me from blood uh, guiltiness, O Elohim, the Elohim of my salvation. My tongue shall rejoice in thy righteousness. Adonai, thou shalt open my mouth, and my lips shall declare thy praise. For if thou hadst desired sacrifice, I would have given it. In whole burnt offerings thou wilt have no pleasure. A sacrifice unto Elohim is a contrite spirit, a contrite and humbled heart Elohim will not despise. That is beautiful, and that should be all of our prayer. Um, I mean, I want a spirit that Elohim does not despise, obviously a humble one. All right, chapter 19. The humility therefore and the submissiveness, so those are the two keys are humility, submissiveness versus jealousy and uh revolt or rebellion. The humility therefore and the submiss- submissiveness of so many and so great men who have thus obtained a good report like the church of Corinth used to have hath through obedience made better not only us, but also the generations which were before us, even them that received his oracles in fear and truth. Seeing then that we have been partakers of many great and glorious doings, let us hasten to return unto the goal of peace, which hath been handed down to us from the beginning. And let us look steadfastly unto the Father and Maker of the whole world, and cleave unto his splendid and excellent gifts of peace and benefits. Let us behold him in our mind and let us look with the eye of our soul into his long-suffering will. Let us note how free from anger he is towards all his creatures. Chapter 20. This is actually um, a great uh, flat earth. He goes to cosmology here. he just describes it. And I, I read, of course, from the Michael Holmes translation, which he does an excellent job at it. We'll see if this version uh, doesn't equal on par. The heavens are moved by his direction and obey him in peace, right? So what we don't want to be is a wandering star, a planet. And they tell us we are a planet um, in order to get us to be disobedient. They want us to, you know, identify uh, the whole Copernican revolution. It has created godlessness. But here he says that it's the heavens that move, not us, and that they are obedient to him. Day and night accomplish the course assigned to them by Him without hindrance one to another, the sun and moon and the dancing stars. I like that there, the dancing stars, according to His appointment, circle in harmony within the bounds assigned to them without any swerving aside. So they circle in their course over our heads. The earth being a bearing fruit in fulfillment of His will. At her proper seasons, putteth forth the food that supplieth abundantly both men and beasts and all living things, which are thereupon making no dissension, neither altering anything which he hath decreed. Moreover, the inscrutable depths of the abysses and the unutterable statutes of the, n- the nether regions are constrained by the same ordinances. The basin of the boundless sea, gathered together by his workmanship into its reservoir, passeth not the barriers wherewith it is surrounded but even as he or- ordered it so it doeth for he said so far shalt thou come and thy waves shall be broken within thee so i mean he's just quoting through scripture here talking about how you know the, the of course water is you know the surface of water is level but it doesn't go past its ba- uh, barriers its boundaries right um that includes antarctica but includes all the continents comes up to the beach doesn't pass it by for he said, so uh, so far shalt thou come, and thy wave shall be broken within thee. The ocean, which is impassable for men, that's kind of interesting, and the worlds beyond it are directed by the same ordinances of the master. So here he's saying that there are oceans which are impassable. I don't know if he's talking about North America at this time, um, or lands beyond our realm. That's... Uh, I find that really fascinating. We can dissect that a little bit more, because we know that you know the Romans and others were in North America, so clearly they were able to. Um, the Egyptians went there, and so on and so forth. Clearly, they were able to get there. So he's got to be talking about another place. The seasons of spring and summer and autumn and winter give way in succession one to another in peace. The winds, in their several quarters, at their proper season, fulfil their ministry without disturbance, and the ever-flowing fountains, created for enjoyment and health, without fail, give their beasts, give their, give their breasts, which sustain the life for men. <laughs> their breasts sustain the life for men. That's an interesting little phrase there. I'll let you make of that what you will. Yea, the smallest of living things come together in concord and peace peace, all these things, the great creator and master of the universe ordered to be in peace and concord, doing good unto all things, but far beyond the rest unto us who have taken refuge in his compassionate mercies through our Adonai, Yahushua Messiah, to whom be the glory and the majesty forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's keep charging through this. Chapter 21. Look ye, brethren, lest his benefits, which are many, turn into judgment to all of us, if we walk not worthily of him and do those things which are good and well-pleasing in his sight with concord for he saith in a certain place the spirit of him who has a lamp searching the closets of the belly <laughs> i don't know if that's a direct from the lxx but that's kind of interesting let us uh, see how near he is and how that nothing escapeth him of our thoughts or our devices which we make it is right therefore that we should not be deserters from his will Let us rather give offense to foolish and senseless men who exalt themselves and boast in the arrogance of their words than to Elohim. Let us fear Yahuwah, or I'm sorry, Adonai Yahusha, Messiah, whose blood was given for us. Let us reverence our rulers. Let us honor our elders. Let us instruct our young men in the lesson of the fear of Elohim. Let us guide our women towards that which is good. Let them show forth their lovely disposition of purity. Let them prove their sincere affection of gentleness. Let them make manifest the moderation of their tongue through their silence. Let them show their love, not in uh, factuous preferences, but without partiality towards all them that fear Elohim and holiness. Let our children be partakers. Now, you might actually say that that might be a little Pollyannity. I'm not sure. Let our children be partakers of the instruction which is in Messiah. Let them learn how lowliness of mind prevaileth with Elohim. What power a chaste love hath with Elohim, how the fear of him is good and great and saveth all them that walk therein in a pure mind with holiness. For he is the searcher out of the intents and desires whose breath is in us, and when he listeth, he shall take it away. Chapter 22. Now all these things the faith which is in Messiah confirmeth. For he himself, through the Ruach HaKadosh, thus, thus invite thus. Come, my children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of Yahuwah. What man is, it, is he that desireth life and loveth to see good days? Make thy tongue to cease from evil, and thy lips that they speak no guile. Turn aside from evil and do good. Seek peace and ensue it. You see the same, you know, this is like a broken record. You see the same themes over and over and again. You know, be careful what you say about the leaders. Stop rebelling against them. You know, stop these schisms. Stop your jealousness. Um, You know, the eyes of Yahuwah are over the righteous and his ears are turned to their prayers. But the face of Yahuwah is upon them also that do evil to destroy their memorial from the earth. The righteous cried out and Yahuwah heard him and delivered him from all his troubles. Many are the troubles of the righteous, and Yahuwah shall deliver him from them all. And again, many are the stripes of the sinner, but them that set their hope on Yahuwah, mercy shall compass about. All right, I have, uh, we're going to go do. I think, three more chapters, and then we'll be done. Chapter 23. The father who is pitiful in all things and ready to do good hath compassion on them that fear him and kindly and lovingly bestoweth his favors on them that draw nigh unto him with a single mind. Therefore, let us not be double-minded, neither let our soul indulge in idle humors, respecting his exceeding and glorious gifts. Let the scripture be far from us where he saith, Wretched are the double-minded, which doubt in their soul and say, These things we did here in the days of our fathers also, and behold, we have grown old, and none of these things hath befallen us. Ye fools, compare yourselves into a tree. Take a vine. First it sheddeth its leaves, then a shoot cometh, then a leaf, then a flower, and after these a sour berry, then a full ripe grape. Ye see that in a little time the fruit of the tree attaineth unto mellowness. Of a truth quickly and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, the scripture also bearing witness to it, saying he shall come quickly and shall not tarry. And Yahuwah shall come suddenly into his temple, even the Holy One, whom ye expect. And it's verses like this right here that make me think that um, uh, that this, the temple is still standing when he's writing this. And um, we won't see more of that tonight, but later, later on in the book next time, we'll see that he still talks about the sacrifices in the temple, present tense. So that really makes me question that this is after 70 AD. Chapter 24, let us understand, dearly beloved, how the master continually showeth unto us the resurrection that shall be hereafter. Wherefore, he made Yahuwah, um, or Adonai, Yehusha, Messiah, the first fruit, when he raised him from the dead. Let us behold, dearly beloved, the resurrection which happeneth at its proper season. Day and night show unto us the resurrection. We, now, we covered this earlier tonight. You can see where this is leading up to the phoenix. The night falleth asleep, and day ariseth. The day departeth, and night cometh on. Let us mark the fruits how and in what manner the sowing taketh place. The sower goeth forth and casteth into the earth, each of the seeds and these falling into the earth dry and bear decay. Then out of their decay, the mightiness of the master's providence raiseth them up, and from being one, they increase, manifold, and bear fruit. Man, I really think this is talking about that generation. I really think it is. All right. From uh, Harvest to Harvest. Forty years to the harvest. Let us consider the marvelous sign which is seen in the regions of the east. That is, in the parts about Arabia, there is a bird which is named the phoenix. This being the only one of its kind, liveth for five hundred years. And when it hath now reached the time of its dissolution, that it should die, it maketh for itself a coffin of frankincense and myrrh and the other spices, into the which, in the fullness of time, it entereth and so it dieth. But as the flesh rotteth, a certain worm is. Engendered. Now, in all my research, I've never heard anyone talk about a worm. It always that that a the same bird or a new bird comes out of it. But here, it's like a, um, it's almost like a metamorphosis with like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. But it's a worm. But as the flesh rotteth, a certain worm is engendered, which is nurtured from the moisture of the dead creature. Lovely picture. And putteth forth wings. Then, when it is grown lusty. (laughs) <laughs> it taketh up the co- that coffin, where are the bones of its parents, and carrying them journeyeth from the country of Arabia, even into Egypt, to the place called the City of the Sun. And in the daytime, in the sight of all flying to the altar of the sun, it layeth them thereupon, and this done, it setteth forth to return. So the priest examine the registers of the times, and they find that it hath come with the 500th year is completed um and then let's just read 26 real quick do we then think it to be a great and marvelous thing if the creator of the universe shall bring about the resurrection of them that have served him with holiness and the assurance of a good faith seeing that he showeth to us even by a bird the magnificence of his promise for he saith in a certain place and thou shalt raise me up and i will praise thee and i went to rest and slept i was awaked for thou art with me and again job saith and thou shalt raise this my flesh, which hath endured all these things. All right. So that concludes our reading of first Clement tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I found that to be amazing commentary on the first century. And again, I you know, going I'll just kind of talk about this a little bit because I know the room is divided here on on Paul. And there are many here who are, are pro-Paul. There are many against Paul and you know I I've tried to to not be offensive and uh, you know two years ago I took down all my anti-Paul uh, literature I, I I I just I felt like um I kind of put it out there too quickly and I needed more time to process it I still do and as we read in here in chapter four or five whatever it's really interesting because I'm seeing Clement is writing this at a very early date And we clearly see that there were schisms due to Peter and Paul. I don't doubt that. It's a picture. I haven't formed this whole picture in my mind yet. I don't think, I don't know if we ever will get to the bottom of all this. I think too much has been buried and covered up. Um, But it it was just really encouraging for me to see a guy like Clements, who's all about Torah. He's all about Yah's instructions and righteousness and keeping them. And yet, you know, he upheld both men, Paul and Peter. Um, So with that, I'm going to open it up. We can roundtable table us. So you guys can talk about uh, anything we read in here, any questions you have, and what are your thoughts? Don't all rush me at once.
2: I read um, Clement a long time ago, too, and I came to the same conclusion. With Paul as well, because you know we we do know in Peter how he said that um that Paul and his writings were hard to understand, which were you know the untaught and the unstable, I guess the old um kind of same scripture that we kind of all go by, but i to me, I did it with some really deep studies on Paul, and uh kind of felt like um Paul kind of got a bit of a bad rap and thought that in some of my studies that I think Paul went through a lot of really huge things in his ministry that, uh, that he endured, like even in, in acts when they talk about him, you know, when they, they took him and that uh, when they came out from Antioch and um, they had stoned him and they, they literally thought that he was dead and they, they had stoned him so bad. And, Typically when you stone somebody at that time, they aim for the head, which Paul became very disfigured in his um from that stoning. And if you read in Galatians, I think it's Galatians um 414. And it says that um, yeah, it was four fourteen, it says, and, and that which was a trial to him in my bodily condition that you did not despise or loathe but you received me as an angel of YAH, as Yeshua HaMashiach himself. So he's saying because Paul was really disfigured in his face from that particular stoning that they did for him. And um, so, yeah, I know there's a lot of divide over Paul, but I I kind of felt like in my own studies that I kind of started sympathizing with Paul and that he was truly um, trying to do what he could, that maybe he was just so, um that he was uh, really brilliant in his mind and stuff. And that's why Peter made that d- decision to say like that he was, that we had to be, to be wary of that.
0: That's my, my thoughts on that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You know, what I, what I found interesting was that you gotta, you gotta imagine the, the environment that Clements is in. He's writing apparently from Rome. Rome was the, <laughs> it's like Washington DC of the day, or, or I guess the Vatican today, really. And uh, it's it's the the hot seat of the world. There was a lot of you know elites there, a lot of uh, shady people, a lot of power shifting, all sorts of stuff there. A lot of insecurity, but also security. And one thing the the Christians had there was they had the choice of comfort, a lot of comfort, just like here in America today. And what happens when I have personally seen in my life people who I thought were strong in the faith, including in their obedience to Torah and the Father's ways, when persecution came along, they fell away from the faith. And so you see Clement here putting a lot of focus on that. He's like, I mean, this was on their minds. He's like, dude, we're on people's lists. They have our names. They know who we are. They could beat down our door anytime, but you guys need to stay strong in your faith. Do not become worldly. You have, you know, here in Rome, we we are fat. We have, you know, we have all these riches because of Rome's conquest of the rest of the world. They've made the rest of the world slaves. So we have these comforts, and that is causing us to fall away from our faith, and this he is putting a lot of emphasis on those who went to the end, who went to the the, the circus, or you could say the Colosseum, even though the Colosseum hadn't been built yet. Who went to torture to prison, and so his um, his focus on Paul is that uh, on both of them. He's like, look, they both went. Uh, Peter was bit beaten down and over and over again, and finally he was killed, and uh, Paul did as well. And so you could see where where they're thinking in that time, where their mindset is, you know, it's all about going to the end, finishing your race. And that is proving, you know, your worth. He doesn't talk about Paul's theology. He doesn't talk about whether he was right or wrong. He doesn't accredit to him a scripture, if you pay attention. I think there was a lot of debate on that at that time. I, I think up until Rome made it canon, I think a lot of people really did see his letters just as letters. And that's going to be the most controversial thought. You know, people are going to get really upset at me. People claim I preach against Paul, which isn't true. Uh, my, my position on Paul has been, for the last two or three years, if everyone is paying attention, that there is a, a true Paul and a false Paul just like there's a true messiah and a false messiah if you follow the lawless jesus that's the false jesus if you follow the lawful yahuwah that's the true messiah if you follow a a lawful Torah obedient paul i don't have a problem with that i have a problem with the 99.9 percent of christianity who follows a lawless paul and we can all you know then decide which is the true paul but um anyways and so it seems like that's that was clement's whole thing too like guys like I'm, 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 I'm supporting these two guys, Peter and Paul, you guys, because Peter made the same circuits as Paul. They were, Peter went to Rome. They all went to the same places, um, you know, probably not visiting at the same time, but they visit the same churches. Oh, last month we had Paul this, you know, two months from now we get Peter. Yay. Um, uh, he's going to come by for a couple of days. And anyways, that's, I think that whole context of, of what we're looking at, I think it's a very convoluted, um, um, uh, um. Uh, difficult conversation. I don't see as many black and whites on this as a lot of people do. Um, so anyways, uh, anybody else? Some people will listen to what I just say and just think I'm bashing them. I'm not bashing them at all. Like literally, guys, like I'm, um, I just, I think that, uh, I, whether Clement was right or wrong on this, I, I, I see him as trying to kind of, trying to try his best to—Clement was on the losing side of history, guys. Like, the, the view of people who be obedient to Torah, that did not win out the day, obviously. That did not become the official narrative of the Church, especially as Rome decided, hey, we can't control these people, so the best thing to do is to convert to Christianity so we can control them. And then, of course, you know, guys like Clement did not win the day. I have a particular question concerning uh, David, and um, when he mentions uh, specifically that against you and you only have I sinned, I've heard that uh, said quite a few times, um, but I don't recall um, anything that really stands out about why it would be just, uh, just against Yahuwah that he has sinned. Yeah, let me, um, let me see where that is in Psalms. Maybe someone could throw in if they against you only have I sinned. Um, and I, unfortunately I lost my, okay, here it is. Psalms 51. So let me read this. I'll go to the King James. And this is straight. Yeah. Created me a clean heart. Oh God. This is the famous song. If you guys were alive in the nineties and youth group, we all sang this. I'm not going to sing it for you now. Cause I have a terrible singing voice, but, uh, it says to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet came unto him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, so this is clearly the context: is he has sinned, he's been confronted, he is Bathsheba is pregnant, he loses his first child, uh, the next child is Solomon, and so he says, "This is his actually his act of repentance." This is a beautiful uh, prayer for all of us when we have been confronted with sin um, in our lives, and you know, and and recognizes that he doesn't. Just want just empty sacrifices. He wants us to turn back to him. So he says, Have mercy upon me, O Elohim, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So he's he's asking him to literally like not like, you know, take the eraser and like, okay, I'm not gonna hold this against you anymore. I'm blotting this out. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for i acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me yeah so oh anyways yeah so okay okay against thee thee only have i sinned that's what he says next and so i think your question is because obviously he actually was responsible for putting Bathsheba's. he he sinned against uh basheba's husband by having an affair an, a marital affair committing adultery and then you you know I, I don't agree that he murdered the guy, but he did send him to the front hoping he would die. And he got his wishes. Um, I think actually they I'd have to read that story again. Maybe they did some military maneuver to kind of like, you know, kill him and his guys or something, but um, yeah, they backed away. That's what they did. They moved them up and the rest backed away, which is so messed up. Now they think about it. So yeah, they, yeah, they totally murdered the dude uh, assassinated him, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, I don't know. Cause I, that, that is interesting. So are you saying that can he rightfully say that he only sinned against um, against Yah? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is the, the the mindset of a king who he's got his subjects and he can do what he want with them and he answers the Yah alone. I don't, maybe, I don't know. Does anyone else have any thoughts on that? If not, that's okay. I guess I can't answer your question. My only thought is that maybe uh, from his mindset, he's a king. He's got all his subjects. They're his to send to the front or to hold back or do what he wants with. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, his, he answers directly to the Most High. You know, he is the king, the priest example, the Michelle Zedek, and he, he failed uh, his next in command, which is Yahuwah. I said, uh, "Man, you said too many contradictions against Torah for me to justify." I'm not sure if you're. uh, Okay, you guys are talking about the uh, the Paul thing. I think so. Okay, you guys are on that. All right.
3: I just wanted to say regarding David that I've often thought about this whole Bathsheba and what he did to her husband, Um, and I, I think that that was one that was David's one point of weakness. He was human. And uh, as so many times we've seen before, the theme reoccurs over and over where difficulties arise over a woman. And it's, I think, just an example. And, and he understand, I think he understood in the end that he had fallen kind of into a trap. Because I believe that that's a trap that uh,
1: Satan uses.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's he's uh, he's the king. I mean, he's up there. He's in his palace and he's looking down from his balcony and there's a good looking woman bathing. And he's like, I'm the king. I can have whatever I want. (laughs) Like, I I want that. And it's yeah, it's he, you know, it's the story is actually very similar to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, if anyone has read it, which, you know, is, is thought to be. Many have thought it to be the oldest piece of literature in, his, in existence. I don't know if that's true or not, just as what is being said. And there is uh, Gilgamesh, who many think is Nimrod, which I think he is as well. And uh, a character called Akindu, which is interestingly a wild man. A wild man is like a Sasquatch character. So this is the first piece of literature, and a wild man is one of the main characters. and um, And so it's the same situation gilgamesh stands on his balcony and he looks down and any woman he sees he takes her even if she's married and he, and so ikindu is is brought to confront him and stop him and uh, but then it takes a turn for the worse because then they uh, they start they start wrestling and it becomes a homosexual romance it's really disgusting but uh, but it's the same thing where nathan you know confronts them but rather than having the heart of nimrod of gilgamesh is my point he he, he uh, you know, you see uh, Shaul before him, Saul, uh, he keeps getting more and more hardened and falling further and further away from Yahuwah until he finally turns to witchcraft. Uh, whereas David, you see, he truly did have a heart for Yah, because when he was confronted, he, um, he immediately repented. And so I, that's why when people say, how can he have a heart for Yah, because he sinned, it's like, no, he sinned, but he immediately repented. I mean, that prayer is an amazing prayer that he says, and that should be all of our prayer when, you know, we recognize that we have sinned and fallen short, uh, that we just, you know, blot out my transgression. I don't ever want to do that again. Forgive me, you know, purify me. I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. I want to be set apart to your ways.
1: Anybody else?
2: I think that when Nathan uh, does go to David and, and does rebuke him, he and he gives him the whole parable of the rich man and and the poor man that he was, you know, um, showing David that maybe David wasn't thinking the errors in his way until he actually had this um, story that was put before him. And then, like, obviously, David ended up saying to him, like, he burned with his anger greatly against this this um rich man that did this thing and then realized that you know when nathan says well you are that man and then he really comes to repentance of that and i think it is a great story because i think we all have sin in us maybe we we can't maybe see it um maybe we we're all walking around with a bit of like you know the log in our eyes that we can't see it and then somebody can come and say to us hey this is what's going on in your life or that you know we can kind of attack one another as believers and say hey you're doing this you're doing that but you know until it's kind of like gives me the ideology of the ruach coming to us and kind of saying hey like nudging us like you've got this in your own life and you need to repent and i think it goes back to what you said earlier that yah really does want us just to to be repentful and to do teshuva in in him and to turn from our ways and to acknowledge that we are sinning against him <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, just to reiterate a few things about Clement, one of the things I really liked about Clement is one of the reasons that attracts me so much to the writings of John or Yocannon is that he's a very, I get the impression with John that he's a very gentle soul and that he's uh you know, he was just a dear old man or he became an older man and, Uh, just loved by many and you could just sense it in his writings even though he's very honest very brutally honest i mean he doesn't hold back but there's something about his penmanship that is is just very lovely and i get a very similar sense with clement and you know clement was a disciple of peter of kifa and again that's interesting that because if if, why well you know getting back to paul why is clement going to defend paul and say look guys yeah he didn't he didn't really defend like his all you know all his again his teachings he didn't go through all that i didn't th- i didn't see a lot of polyanity in that surprisingly like you saw like you, you read ignatius later it's ignatius scholars will say that ignatius only had the letters of paul like that's all he quoted he didn't have like even, he may not even have the gospels uh he was just a polyanity guy but you didn't see that with clement and he didn't have like a um A very rebuking spirit he didn't have a it was just a you know it wasn't like a judgmental spirit he's like he's placing himself in this and he's like guys like like let's just you know let's let's love y'all let's be obedient to him let's just follow as you used to right it's just it's a it's it's almost like an exhortation to to return to the good path and it just you don't see a lot of this fiery negative you know pulpit you know book smashing beating kind of personality. So I really enjoyed that with Clement. And I just liked how he just tries to remind us by taking us through the story of the Bible from beginning to end and saying this is you. This is these are our fathers. These are those who fell away from the truth by rebellion and these who those who had good report. And it, he keeps saying that over and over and over again, we want you to have a good report. But Unfortunately, your church does not have a good report. If you go around and ask anybody right now, nobody wants to go to your church because there's not a good report there. So, what can we do to, you know, to get that? And I, I mean, I want that for our community here at the Unexpected Cosmology. I want us to have a good report, and it, it's hard because we do have troublesome people who come into this community they have the loudest megaphone and they'll say things like when we have to we've had to remove some people some uh, leaven some yeast and they'll say oh we you know we thought you know we could come here and talk freely and that's but they just came to cause trouble and stir you know we don't want that but i want this community for us to have a good report and you know d- you know love each other and how we talk and our dialogue and um you know I don't know. I mean, hopefully be a community that something I, I want to work on in the future is, you know, maybe how we could take care of the community and, you know, people's needs and that kind of stuff, because that's that's what's on Yaw's heart. Like, y'all doesn't, let's be honest, guys, Y'all doesn't care if we figure out the moon map. Like, if, if he did, he would have put that into the Bible. He would have been like, okay, Genesis 1, okay, so there's this large section of land that is, like, going to be undiscovered, <laughs> and it's like, you got to look up to the moon, there's a ma- Like, he doesn't do that, Right. Um we see a little bit that like in jasher and stuff where the patriarchs were able to look up to the stars and figure out the map which is pretty cool um of you know where Joseph was and all that but over and over again what he wants for us is to care for the widows the poor uh bring justice that's why I'm in the truther movement because we want to declare justice we want to show the injustice in the world um but he wants us not just to he doesn't want us our words remember it it's where we read that they with their mouth says one thing But their inwards say another, right? And that's what we don't want. We don't want our inwards. We don't want to just be like going around telling everyone, Well, I hope you're keeping the Sabbath and I hope you're refraining from pork. And then you come over to my house and I'm like chewing on bacon and you know, like watching football games on Sabbath or something, right? Like, you know, like I hope we live it and I hope we our community that wants to take care of other people's needs and and so on and so forth. That was my speech
1: for the night.
0: I'm uh, thrilled that you guys are here. And I, again, I hope you guys enjoyed First Clement. And uh, I was really blown away from it. Now, next week, we're going to continue with the Genesis Targum. Michael should be back, and I will have to find a time. Maybe we can section it off and do a little bit of Clement each week to uh, finish the book, because it it gets exciting. Second Clement's really awesome, too, by the way. Like There's some really cool stuff in there. Um, and understanding, like Second Clement, he quotes from Yehusha a few times, and you can't find it anywhere in canon. It's so awesome. You're like, uh, he's quoting from the Gospel of Thomas, he's quoting from this book, that book, and and it's like a little awkward because the original uh, uh, <laughs> the original followers of Messiah had very, very different books than we have. So, all right, Shabbat Shalom. One last time, we are concluding for the night. I'll close shop, and then the after party can begin. So, thank you everybody for coming. I'll hang on with you guys a little bit longer. Is that, does anybody? Yeah, good night to everyone who wants to sign out. Josh, you are free to. I don't know if you want to keep recording. You can, um, but thank you for all the work you do. I'm really grateful, to everyone. All the videos you see up on YouTube, you know, Josh has recorded like ninety five or ninety eight percent of those. So I'm really grateful to him. Some of you are really quiet. I sometimes wonder if you guys are like just like they you just sign in and fall asleep on me.
1: Noel, that was absolutely
0: amazing with the phoenix. It's just crazy. So like when when you think about the phoenix and all kinds of stories in the past, it's like you wonder how much of it is actually like legit and not just myth. It's it's outstanding. It's crazy. Yeah, and that's. <sighs> I mean, that's the thing about him. Like Clement is he's here he is. He's writing about history, biblical history. so we're writing about Abraham, the flood, and Noah, and all this kind of stuff. And then he throws the Phoenix in there. and he he clearly believes it to be true. He talks about there's the city, the sun, and the priests. They see it every five hundred years, and they take a marking of it. and i really I really think that's one of the secrets. I mean, it's not just this book, by the way, guys. There are other books that they talk about this. And uh, that there was this phoenix. There was once, and it came every 500 years. We also read about the phoenix in 3rd Baruch, and how the phoenix uh, would go with the sun. And people have speculated, I think, in this room, about some of the sun, the spots we would see in the sun, if that's the phoenix. Really interesting that it apparently flies with the sun. And, um, it, you know, being, I guess, kind of a spiritual entity in a way. Uh, there's, and... Clement certainly seems to see it that way. He believes it's real. So, but that really, that really <clears throat> struck me because the the five hundred year theme seems to be pretty consistent. And um, as soon as I read that, I mean, I, because I looked into the phoenix with the elites and the you know the post mud flood and, all, and it, the phoenix is everywhere, guys. It's all over the world. Just down the street from me, there's like the the phoenix uh, elderly center, which is kind of an interesting name to to name a an elderly sinner but it's like there's something legit about uh, on an esoteric and according to Clement an exoteric level
4: well you know the older I get and the deeper that I study the more that I'm beginning to believe that almost all of mythology you know the gods all the different creatures and everything I'm more and more beginning to believe they were all real and that they were just called mythology just as a cover-up. I mean, you know, obviously the Bible talks about all these different gods and everything, you know, all the planets are named after gods, and, you know, of course gods with small g, but I, I'm beginning to believe that all mythology that has ever been written is ha, has foundational truth to all of it.
0: I fully agree, uh, absolutely, and this is one of Satan's tactics in the Age of Deception, the Season of Deception. And we talked about this before, how he gives you the truth and then he lies to you about it. So basically, one of the ways you can dethrone the Bible, just showing that it's one of the myths along with all the others, is to take all these realities that people believe were real. They you know, they literally worship these gods. And uh, I, I believe, guys, I, I think Mount Olympus was real. I think, you know, like where we get the Olympic Games. They had a mountain called Mount Olympus, and they believed the gods lived there. You have to figure that at some point, somebody encountered the gods there, or else they wouldn't have just said, hey, I think that mountain right there, let's just make up a bunch of books and poems and Homeric, you know, odysseys and all just fake stuff and teach our children this about this mountain, you know, let's just make the, like, no, like, just like Mount Sinai, it was a place where Yahuwah literally came down, you know, the mountains, the, the gods always come down to the mountains, right? And You see it in German mythology and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and Satan's just like, yeah, it's all myth, never happens, um, you know, it's just a bunch of fairy tales that people made to entertain children. And uh, it's like, no, that's the, the ancients believed all this was true. Now the, the Bible addresses it in two ways. It, um, it talks about real gods, obviously, as you said, and, you know, Asherah, Ashereth and, you know, um, you know, the, the different angels and, you know, Azazel, I don't even need to pronounce all their names, but, but then also there are the, the, the idols, right. That there are, I think uh, Clement says it later on. He says, um, he said, if only the idols would worship men, because he says that we create the idols, we should be gods to them, which is kind of an interesting way to look at it. But um, if. go Go ahead. No, you go ahead. If if my
4: understanding of scripture is correct, I mean, we can go all the way back to the Tower of Babel when uh, I may be off of my numbers, but where there were 72 languages that were divided up into and basically uh, uh, the father, the creator took one. And I believe that is Hebrew, the original language. I could be wrong on that. But he gave the other 71 nations over to angels to govern. And right there, I mean, in my thinking, there's automatically 71 gods right there because the people are going to end up worshiping those because from my understanding, they all turned bad and wanted the people to actually begin to worship them instead of the Father.
0: Yeah, that there. I actually just did a word search in 72. I, I There appears to be 72, but yeah, I think, I think the reference is 70 nations. And of course, obviously, Israel, Yasharal, is the set-apart, right? Like he always has a, his own set-apart remnant, kind of like the the set-apart spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, who has seven spirits, and there's one that is set-apart. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm in full agreement there that there were—he actually—it's crazy when you follow this line of research that he actually assigned these 70 Elohim to rule over these people, and he gave the people over to these Elohim as their shepherds. Like, that's really crazy. Like, think about that. And, um, of course, you know, later on, I think it was Psalm 82 or 81, that he, uh, he brings these these uh, Elohim into his court, his divine counsel, and he criticizes them. And he says, I'm going to destroy you like men because you are uh, not teaching them my, my laws. You're supposed to and you're not. You know, this is what we saw in Enoch with the worthless mysteries of heaven, that the, the watchers came down. They gave the worthless. You hear me. You guys hear me say this like every week. You're probably like rolling your eyes, tired of it. But, uh, you know, they gave the worthless mysteries and they did not bring the Torah, his law. And um, we see that later on in Enoch, uh, the the animal parade, as I call it, where it prophesies that Israel would be divorced from Yahuwah and that he would th- remove them from the land and hand them over to the 70 shepherds. And he tells the 70 shepherds, these are the Elohim, I believe. People will say it's like, like, it, it represents like a different rabbis or things like that it's like no these are the these are the 70 nations these are the 70 elohim the angels over these nations and he tells them he's like i'm gonna hand these people over to you you had better not harm them you harm them you kill them i'm taking your name and you will be judged for this and um and then it says that they quickly started devouring and killing them now here's here's the thought i have what if the 70 uh elohim don't exist anymore What if they were judged and taken care of? It's because it's interesting now, you know, you have the United Nations and we have how many countries? It's, uh, I think, 100 and it's almost 200. It's like 197 or something like that. Uh, And when you consider the Vatican and Palestine and um, or entities, governments, which is it's like the watchers. I think it's instead of the 70. Now we have the 200 watchers that are in place which is really trippy, you know, in the, it, it's Satan's uh, short season. So you just see it, the swap. Because I always wondered, like, why do we have 200 nations if they're supposed to be 70? No, it's, it's according to the Elohim.
4: Yeah, uh, as far as, you know, the thing you're saying about, well, they were priests or whatever. Um, my understanding, the only human being that was ever ascribed to being an Elohim was Samuel, when the witch of Endor resurrected his spirit from the dead. Uh, he was the only one until Yahushua, when he was resurrected, that was ever deemed an Elohim.
0: Well, uh, this is something I haven't done a study on. Maybe somebody in this room has. But in Genesis, it's, uh, it says what it says. It actually there, it refers to Abraham as an L. There's a whole passage, and they, they cut it out of the, the English translations. And I think the, uh, the Sefer may have put the L in there. But there's a few chapters where it's really strange and they just start saying like El Abraham. I think it says El Sarah and then maybe it's El Yitchat too, Yitchak, but uh it's really strange. It starts attributing to them to Elohim. Um and so I don't know what to make of that. The only conclusion I can come to is that it's ascribing them to the sons of Elohim, um, like the uh like you know, Seth and some of the others. So I, I don't know.
4: Well, my understanding is that uh, Elohim is, in, in its barest form, a spirit being. So I don't know how Abraham could have ever been called an Elohim. Uh,
0: I don't. I, I don't know. But it, it's one of those things that is. Um, I've only had that discussion with people in like closed rooms. <laughs> it's one of those kind of discussions. But in the Masoretic, it says it and. I I myself have not done a deeper study on it, but I have seen it for myself, and it's there in the Hebrew, and it calls them L, uh, which is always the name for an Elohim. It's short for Elohim. Yeah. So
4: that's that's the problem. We've got so many writings, you know. It's it it all goes back that I you know eat it all and spit out the bones. You know <laughs> what makes sense, what doesn't. You know, and of course we've all got opinions and all that, so we're all going to differ slightly. But you know. I think most things we we do pretty good on agreement in Huron.
3: Well, you've brought up some fascinating ideas, especially um, I never made the connection between the the 70 uh, angels and the 70 nations. And them ruling over. I mean, I I'd read that before, but when you said about the, the United Nations and there's 200, and we know there's 200 Watchers, that's that's very interesting. Uh, that I think I think that subject or topic bears more
0: uh, exploration. Also, yeah. since also since I am convinced that Azazel is Hasatan, uh, I. <laughs> i think that uh the vatican <laughs> i'm gonna i don't i'm just gonna sign uh, azazel as over the vatican that's my guess if i had to guess
4: uh, have you ever seen the video where the the lucifer's throne in the vatican i mean when i seen that I, I was amazed i'm like are you serious i mean that thing is huge and it's got that big sunburst behind it or whatever you want to call it and i I was fascinated. Never seen anything like it till just I don't know, maybe a year ago. Somebody posted a video on it, and it was amazing.
3: It's well, really creepy. You, you look at the it's room, and really- it, it looks like the whole thing looks like the You know, the, the whole thing is designed to look like a viper.
0: Yes, that's what I was going to say. It is so creepy so i'm I'm... you know in the vatican that's
4: what yeah it's it's crazy man it's like it's so blatant and wide open it's like why can't people see this you know they go there and they do all this worship and i'm sure there are probably millions of people every year go to the vatican they go through there and they they just don't see it they're blind to it they don't see it
1: Yeah,
3: Josh just posted that picture, and, and you know, you, you even look at the, it. Even you know, you see the scales and, and the fangs, and, and you know, the, it's just so bizarre. It looks like well, it should. Be,
4: that's not it looks, the one I'm talking about. The one well, I'm talking about is a huge, gigantic throne with a sunburst uh, behind it. I mean, it's a, it's not a little one that the Pope can sit on. I mean, you would have to be a giant to sit on the one I'm talking about.
0: Well, this one looks like the one that Josh posted, it looks like it should be the throne room of like Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars or something like that. You know, it's just like it is so unbelievably creepy and evil. I can't see how anybody who is a true servant of Yah would choose something like that.
4: well the great deceiver is alive and well and he has deceived the nations i mean that, that's his job and he's doing it very well he's deceiving the nations Uh, i agree josh i i consider myself and maybe wrongly but i i i believe i'm awakened and that i am set apart i mean i definitely when i get in a crowd of people and start a conversation i guarantee you within minutes they either think that i am totally nuts or that i'm just some kind of a, a fruitcake conspiracy guy because you know i start talking about scripture and about the father and you know and they're just looking at me like Wow. But what's great about it, every once in a while, I was like, yeah, you know, I heard that. I was thinking about that. You know, I just got in a conversation the other day that turned into flat earth. And the guy's like, yeah, I heard that new flat earth thing going. What's that all about? And within a minute, I mean, he opened the door and I jumped right in. I just gave him a couple of real quick, 100% perfect truths that could not be denied. And he's like, wow. I'm going to have to do some study on that and I, in my mind I'm like, "Yay! <laughs> There's another one maybe opened up and start doing
1: some research, you know?"
0: There was a uh, I was driving down the highway yesterday and I'm here in the Midwest and there was a a big billboard that somebody had put up and it it shows the the American flag and a cross and it says, "Stand for the flag, kneel for the cross." You know, so you know, worship the both of them—the flag and the cross. But then it 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 said, uh, if you don't have pride in America, then leave it. And and I I never want to like uh, deface anything, but I almost felt like like I, I in that moment I was like, man, I wish I had like a, a spray can because I want to put under there something like, uh, sure, can you point me in the direction of the Millennial Kingdom? Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll okay. go. <laughs> I'll gladly leave this country. Just point me in the direction of the land. I'll I'll go. So,
4: Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but the, the United States government is one of the most diabolical governments in the world. I mean, they literally destroy other countries that were like, take Venezuela, for example. Venezuela was one of the top producing oil countries in the world. The revenue, everything was great. And I mean, the United States totally destroyed that company that country. Their money is so worthless that uh, people were making purses and bags out of them and selling them on the street. That's how worthless their money is.
3: Was that whole thing over the fact that they wouldn't uh, install a central bank? Wasn't that the uh, point of contention? Uh, they were one of the few nations without a centralized banking system, if I uh, remember correctly. And now i well, believe that, they do have a central bank it's that's a whole well yeah that's one of the out. very
4: first things one of the first things you don't get a, a central banking system you're doomed because i mean that belongs to the rothschilds rothschild runs a world and right over top of them is satan pushing them on every aspect i mean they own the entire world
2: Um, I just wanted to thank you, Noelle, for creating this um, this channel and this community, and your and your um, thoughts that you had expressed earlier in regards to creating a safe space in a community for people and helping one another. Because I I do find and have found in this um, movement, or even when you have different ideas or reading different apocryphal books, that you can get very attacked, and you know, or if you're keeping a different calendar, I think, I think that what drew me to um, this group. And that was just like a safe space to come to express ideas that we all have questions and we're all on the same road of trying to find truth and ideologies. And I I don't think that any one of us has all the answers. However, we're all on a road of truth seeking. And I just really um, felt like it resonated with me when you had said that you were trying to create this community. And I just wanted to let you know, I really, really, really do appreciate that and, um, and hear your heart on that. And uh, yeah, I just kind of want to put that out there. And then I just had a, a quick question about the mud flood. Um, uh, with all of the children um, in the, that were left in the 1800s that were on kind of like the orphan trains and everything. Um, and maybe you've said it in other videos and stuff, but um where did uh, my, my thought is, is, I've done a lot of research on it, but where did where do you think that all of the adults went during that time and why there were so many children
0: left? And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Well, OK, so the the question is, um, I, I want to be careful about doing this because. If you if everyone watched uh, is Erwinon his like five hour documentary, uh, which was a, a fascinating documentary, I, I think i watched it twice uh he he starts out by showing all the the cities that are empty you know and the way he makes it out in there is that that was a one time event like suddenly everybody woke up and these photographers go out and like let's photograph these empty cities and it, it is possible that there was an event like that that they tried to you know change the years on like you know oh this this photo was taken in 1845 um You know, in in Moscow. And this one was taken in, you know, 1872, San Francisco, but really they're all the same year, right? I, I don't know. I don't really know. But the thing about the orphan train is that, or orphanages in general, like how long does someone remain a child, right? 12 years, 14 years, right from the time they're born. But these orphanages were going up all through the 1800s. And the orphan train lasted into the early 1900s. So the thing is, is that the I think that there's a little bit of wishful thinking of trying to say, well, there was this one event, all these adults died, and uh suddenly they had one generation had to deal with all these children, so let's put them on trains and create these orphanages. I mean that could have been it, but it seems to me a little bit more messy than that. You know, and I've heard people speculate, oh, these are like the resurrected, they which I, I hope that the resurrection I'm not resurrected as a child. Uh, with no memory of my former life. I hope that's not the case, because that's not, and, you know, that Yah would sell me into slavery. That sounds awful. Um, so I don't know what to make of the orphan trade. I, I know that there was a lot of, in the 1800s, there was a lot of orphans everywhere that is not explained to us. They try to explain it through, you know, the, the, uh, the fallen women and that kind of stuff and, you know, immorality. And um, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know why, why there was so much, so many orphans everywhere. Uh, there could have been a systematic death going on, you know, like agenda 2030 type thing where baby people were being off for 40, 50 years or something. I don't know. Does, does anyone have any thoughts on that?
4: You got the weird part about the incubators too. I mean, you know, that's something that isn't, I mean, they shouldn't have had at that time that technology to have these baby incubators but they're in every single uh, World's Fair all over the world they had. They had these baby incubators, which that, that's a really weird one also.
0: Yeah, now, Sarah just brought up a really good point that she's spot on. She said, it's hard enough to acknowledge that we are all descendants of enemies of Yah. Um, that is that is true. Now, I think that there are two things going on. I want you guys not to just but the same thing is, though, is that even if the Millennial Kingdom didn't happen, the same is true that when the gospel went out, it was going to Israel, to the Lost Tribes, to the people who were removed already for disobeying Yah. So the same would be true even then, okay? That our descendants would be from, uh, from you know, those who were built against Yah. But, but I, I'm going to take this a little bit deeper than that. What happened— uh, If I'm correct, and the millennial kingdom did happen, and I believe it did, and YAH came in and he destroyed the enemy, uh, and he brought in, he resurrected the righteous, I'm still unclear on, you know, the 144,000 and all this and that, but I know that across the earth, there were um, the righteous that were set up. Some of them crossed over into the millennial kingdom, many of them were resurrected. What was one of the points of the resurrected? It was to repopulate the earth. So I want you guys to think about that. That's something I haven't really talked about, but think about that, okay? We aren't just descended from rebels. We, that is true, but we're actually descended. Like, who are we descended from? Think about that. Seriously, guys. Like, who are, who, who are we descended from? We're de- we might be descended from the resurrected. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I... Oh, go ahead. So I, I think that there's two, I do believe, now, according to the Odes of Solomon, it said that the seed of the serpent was destroyed. All right. Now, the, how, how that, you know, I, I don't know if that means that it was completely like removed from the earth, because I do believe that obviously we know that the demons, the spirits, they were in the wilderness. We see that in Revelation where it says um, that Jerusalem would be a haunt for devils and demons. And it's like you don't want to go there guys it's it's not it, y- y'all wasn't there so there were wa- there were demons, there were devils on the earth and the wilderness in these places. I believe the seed of Satan was also there um, but so I think that there's two things going on and when when I write about serpent seed today and I talk about like these super elite people who are all related to each other um the, I, I don't know if their genealogies are you know correct or not, obviously right History is a lie but there's something esoterically going on, and I think that they are related to a uh, a very rebellious maybe there was another incursion. I don't know there could have been another incursion but i so I think that there's two groups of people i think that there's a people of the of the of the evil seed uh and then there's the people that we are the descended from, and that is the um the the resurrected so That's gonna be where some people get off the train, but go ahead.
4: Well, the millennial kingdom, from my understanding, and I I agree, I believe it to happen, would have been all the believers, all the Torah followers and everything up until that period of time. And then after the millennial, because there's two resurrections. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. There's two resurrections in the book of Revelations. What if all of those people were the second resurrection of all the believers from the beginning of time, or all the people that did not believe or never heard from the beginning of time, and they're resurrected, and now because we have all the books and everything, they have a second chance to actually hear the word, and they have no escape from that. And that we are actually descendants of the people of the second resurrection. Maybe.
1: What are your guys' thoughts on that?
2: I just think it's really interesting um, with the orphan trains and stuff, because uh, my sister-in-law was researching her ancestry and genealogy and um, had found and come across quite a few articles that um, my husband's family had um, come over on the uh, ships that they were part of. The orphans that were coming out of England and that's kind of where the ancestry kind of really stopped and they couldn't get any more information um out of all these orphans but it's like all of my husband's side of the family were all from these orphanages and orphan people um and it actually showed pictures in from the 1800s that she had dug up um from, uh, you know, archives and, and museums and stuff like that that uh, showed pictures of his ancestries of all these children on these ships coming off. I just think it's just really bizarre. And I think to me, that's one of the most curious things about this whole um, endeavor of trying to uncover all of these this information is why so many children, and it's not just even North America. We're talking like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands even in Russia that you see all yeah. these orcs children and yeah i just find it really perplexing uh I'm, and maybe we'll never get the answers to it i don't know but um definitely it is
0: curiosity just kind of just keeps driving me i think it's um it's one of those things that it's worth putting you know in our it filing away in the cabin in our mind and maybe we will get those answers it's the same thing with you know, my well my genealogy i've been able to trace it uh, way far back Uh, About 800 years. And most people will say that they can only really trace their genealogy that far, which is really interesting. People who have told me they can trace it back further, like when I actually try to stick them to it, they're like, they actually can't. It's just kind of like rumors and stuff, Um, you know, kind of based on like they're related to one person. Therefore, they must be related to all these others, whatever. But um, my wife, I tried to do hers uh, genealogy. And it was the same way. Just, like, in the 1800s, I only got, like, I got two or three um, uh, generations where every single generation, they were changing their last name. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I can't even follow this. And we see that a lot in the 1800s where tons of last name changes. You know, they're coming over to uh, Ellis Island um, and coming in through New York or whatever, and they would just reassign them names, all sorts of stuff. And I think that there was a lot of... Um, So it's similar to with the uh, the mud flood where I, I, you know, my theory is that it was actually Satan doing it to to erase the kingdom. And so there was a lot going on where they were trying to scrub the past. And one of the ways they do that is through name changes, Um, people who were just insignificant or whatever, or or maybe they didn't want them to know their history or whatever. I don't know. Um, So, yeah, there was a lot of that going on.
4: Well, you know the the people, the the believers that were in the millennial kingdom. Okay, now if we if we think that after that was over, all these people that came up were the second resurrection, it does not necessarily mean that they were unbelievers, because you have to realize there were people and nations all over the world that possibly never ever even heard the word. So those people were also, you know. Uh, reincarnated or, you know, the second resurrection. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we are, you know, the descendants of really bad people. We could be descendants of people that just never heard the word and never had a chance. You know, children that were uh, born dead or died when they were children. I mean, because they never had a chance, they get a second chance. I mean, that's, that's just another thought for me.
0: So one of the things I want to do, and I'm not prepared to give this presentation yet, but I want to follow the path, uh, the reported path of all the disciples that I can. Now there were, you know, there were 12 apostles and then there were 70 others and they went all over the world. They went to India, they went to Russia, they went to Germany, they went to England. Uh, You know, I, I've been just today, I was just sitting up here researching Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene. And it really does appear like they, they went to, um, you know, uh, France and England in uh, the, the, the 40s and just some really interesting research and and so what i want to do is try to trace where the disciples went he said that the gospel would reach the furthest corners of the earth and then the end would come and i want to see if we can trace what we call these tartarian buildings to all those locations for example you find some of the you know you find some of the most beautiful buildings in england just beautiful what they you know what they call tartarian buildings Well, according to tradition, England was the first country that embraced Christianity. So is there a connection between those who embraced the teachings of Messiah and were rewarded with it to the beautiful buildings that we see? Uh, We do see some in America, but they are very few and far between, uh, which is not very inhabited compared to, say, England, right? Or France, um, or Spain, or Italy. So and Germany, and so on and so forth, it went, went, went all through Europe. So that's really what I want to um, see if I can find a good connection on that, that there were the people who embraced the message and lived a holy life. And they were rewarded with this big, you know, these big, beautiful cities and houses. Yeah, Sarah, I do. I, no, I think that um, there's good cases that many of the Native Americans came from the Lost Tribes. and they they had a lot of similarities like they called the father's spirit uh, very similar to yahuwah uh they you know they wore the tassels on their a lot of them on their their clothing uh on the the corners of the garments and who was it uh, i don't think she's she came in earlier she's gone now lisa she talks about how she believes that the wearing the tassels in the four corners of our garments should be like the native american outfits Uh, And I I think that's kind of cool. I thought about getting like a like a like a leather jacket or something with like tassels all up the sleeves and everything. Be like, here's my this is how I roll. These are my tassels. But uh, uh, and there's just a lot of similarities. Um, They would eat clean animals. A lot of the tribes, you know, they didn't eat unclean animals. Um, And it goes on and on from there. And I think some of them even had Sabbath days, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, things that they don't tell us in history class that, you know, they they went went in and they erased scrub these uh these civilizations of native americans and through, did you guys know that the term racism um actually uh derives from this that his name was uh, i did an article on it his name was a like colonel um who is the guy that star who's married to a schwarzenegger now and he starred in guardians of the galaxy chris Pratt. Um, I, I think Chris Pratt is related to this guy. He's like General Pratt or whatever. He was the guy who led Geronimo to uh, prison, I think, in St. Augustine. And he was the guy who was very instrumental in rounding all the Native Americans up. And he actually coined the term racism. He coined the term racism for anybody who did not, who believed in segregation. Now, if you hear the word segregation today, you're like, "Oh, you're a racist. You're a, you know, you believe in like the the Jim Crow laws and all this kind of stuff." He's like, "No, no, 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 no. I understand what segregate to a person in the 1800s. I understand what segregation meant. It meant that a Native American had a right to exist, that a Puerto Rican had a right to be Puerto Rican and exist as a Puerto Rican. But what they were doing, the Victorian era, is they were coming in and they were trying. Pratt had a saying. He said." kill the Indian to save the man. And what he meant was, is that we need to erase all of their heritage as being a Native American and make them white. And if you don't believe that, you're a segregationist, you're a racist. That's actually where, you can look this up, that's where it originated. And it's really, it's crazy how, you know, the intel department and the elites have used that term as a weapon from the very beginning. If you believe That uh, this is where this idea of segregations in schools were like African schools, like, you know, or whatever, like, you know, you're you're Mexican, you want to be a part of the Mexican culture. You don't need to go to the public school, which is a uh, a cauldron of where they're just trying to erase your ethnicity and make you into the image of the beast. That's what the public school system does. Um, And and so that just I don't know that it just came to me with the Native Americans. And that's where it was coined from. Uh, You are a racist if you believe that the Native Americans have a right to exist. Now they've actually flipped it, you know, and oh, how terrible that that government actually did what they did. And it's like, okay, whatever. It's all the same government.
4: Yeah, well, our medical uh, teams, whatever you want to call them, you know, within the past probably 50 years, if not more, have spent millions and millions of dollars taking vaccines into Africa basically just to try to wipe out the whole African civilization and that's a fact I mean you can look that up uh, you know they show me oh we, we'll we give you these vaccines for free and everything and you know that's one of the ways that uh, HIV and the the uh, AIDS virus and all that you know it began in Africa yeah India any place where there's just what they figure? too many dark people. And I hate to say that, but I mean, it's true. And you know, these guys, they go there to do genocide. That's their whole idea. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's in high gear right now. And now it's not just on the dark people. It is worldwide.
1: I don't
0: know, never My trust a man. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, never trust a man with shifty eyes. Go ahead. I was
2: uh, I was going to say, I, I've always, always, like, often wondered why, you know, like, um, the Native people were always really oppressed, you know, over the centuries. And um, it's always kind of made me curious. I, I don't have any thoughts on that. But my husband and I watched um, one of your um, videos where you guys went into your hometown and started kind of, like, doing a, a mud flood kind of um, uh field trip and so my husband,
0: yeah
2: yeah so my husband and i tried to do the same thing in our community because we have a lot of really ornate um big huge buildings in the in the city that we live in and uh so we end up going down and kind of taking pictures and stuff and uh had the police come (laughs) come after us because we were taking pictures around some of these um parliament buildings and stuff and uh, legislation buildings Uh, and actually there's a lot of evidence of mud flood here as well um and we had taken the pictures of of these things and yeah we got kind of accosted by the by the security
0: and the police officers do you mind do you mind do you mind saying what city is that
2: uh it's on vancouver island in canada okay victoria
0: wow yeah it was it's crazy how the evidence is ever any old any city that they say is like 200 years old i mean it's it's you know what's much more, um, much more obvious than Charleston. Now keep in mind, and I talked about this in my video that uh, that you know the American Civil War they went down and burned down the American South, and I know why now. I mean, it's, uh, Sherman, you know, gave uh, uh, the city of Savannah to Lincoln as a as a Christmas gift, as he called it, in 1864. And you go to Savannah, it is so in your face. The entire city was built underground. You go down there and it's like like the businesses, you have to walk down staircases to get to the first floor. And it's like, who in the world builds a city underground where you have to go down underground to the first floor but that's savannah for you and it's like man what did what did atlanta used to look like before that baby burned down in some of those places but i was gonna say on the the native american oh and keep in mind charleston too i think like uh at least half the city burned down in civil war it was an oops you know they just it was just accidentally burned down it wasn't the the union that came in and did it amazingly so it seems like the confederates were working for the union and you know it's like oh you didn't come in and finish the job we'll do it for you uh, so, the thing about the Native American, the reservations that I, I've talked about in the past, and I, I need to kind of dust it off. I'd also like to look into the the designations of the national parks, because there's some really weird things in all the national parks that they talk about, and I could get into that. But uh, the the Native American reservations. They're really interesting because what what when they were starting to go on to them, the Smithsonian was uh, creating the land bridge theory. And what, what the US government with the Smithsonian basically did was is telling all the Native Americans after they starved them out, keep in mind you know they killed off the what the hundreds of millions of bison in just a matter of years, they killed them all off to starve them off the plains and into the reservations and um cut off their food supply. And they said, Okay, you can live on these reservations if you agree to one thing. You were here first. And you walked here. That is so important to the narrative guys. So whenever they go into all of these reservations are amazingly uh, strategic, like you, even in the city of Long Beach, where I was raised in Long Beach, California, right there at Cal State, Long Beach, there's a big field in a city. Well, they don't advertise this, but you come to find out that it's a Native American burial ground. And anywhere where there's a Native American burial ground, you have to leave it. And this is very important because. You go into these places and you start digging up things and you find giant skulls and mummies and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the out is, well, it's on a Native American reservation. So it, it, it always comes down to what um, they, always, they always tell you is, OK, there's there's, you know, these people might have come on ships. But the Native Americans came here first and they walked here. That's the most important thing. They walked here on the land bridge. And they still hold this ridiculous narrative to this day. And so there's something about it, you know, that you get a slice of the pie and you have to go along with this narrative. And they hold to it. You talk to the Native Americans to this day. It is very political. Nobody came here first before them. They were the first ones here. And then the national parks are kind of interesting because a lot of people don't know this, that People go missing all the time in national parks, and it's never talked about on the news. And these people are never found. And it's all in these government zones. When I was at Adam Fink's house, it was it was a creep. Uh, this was two years ago. It was the creepiest conversation. We were sitting there. I was talking with Adam about all these people that go missing in national parks. It'll be something like this: like you're sitting there with your buddies, you're sitting around a fire, campfire, and one of the guys is like, um, "I gotta go and pee." right and he goes and you can imagine sitting around a fire and he walks to the tree line where it's dark and you can't see him anymore and all of a sudden you hear a twig snap and you don't think much about it and uh you're sitting there and 15 20 minutes go by and you're like where's uh where's rick and you go and he you never hear from him again you never he's just gone and this happens all the time well i was when we were having this conversation his wife text us and go a, a good friend of hers went missing she was riding her bicycle through a through uh, her mountain bike through a national park she went missing she has never been found since and uh, as soon as that happened we were sitting there going like oh dude she's not going to be found again um so there's like weird things in the national parks that they don't talk about and so i i have never been able to put it together like why did they assign these areas as national parks is it you know there's all these different theories on it are there underground tunnels is this like a a ritualistic place for like you know like nephilim like there's all these different theories and we just don't know
2: There's some really crazy things about um, Vancouver Island uh, in Canada here, too. Like uh, they did a series, um, a TV series a couple years ago, and it was called uh, The The Taboo. And it was made in England and it was about Vancouver Island. It wasn't even on the map at that time during the East Indian Company. And um, it was about this area called Nuka Sound. And there's some really shady stuff that uh, was happening at that time. I mean, if you do watch the series, um, there's a little bit of like uh, sexual content in it. Uh, It's definitely not for children, but um, it's actually a really, really interesting uh, kind of semi-documentary. I I don't know how fully true everything is in it, but it really talks about kind of what went on at that time in, in this area. But what they end up doing, we did a bunch of research on it. And they end up taking uh, this native tribe that actually lived there in this Nuka Sound. Um, they were some sort of nomadic people and uh, they end up taking all of their like statues and um, there's not a ton of stuff on the internet about it, but they end up taking them to New York and putting them in the New York uh, museum in the basement never ever to kind of um, see any of this stuff ever again but uh we've been kind of looking into that for the past about year and a half now and what hap actually happened with this nomadic tribe and a lot of people like things went missing around there and the ships of james cook and all that and uh and um sir francis drake was um another one that uh sailed the seas over in that area and um he was the one that Drake ended up owning a part of the uh, island at that time, but it wasn't even on the map at that time. If you look at older maps, the area wasn't even on the maps. So it was just really, really interesting, uh, uh, how all that even transpired of that area. So much mystery and all the history in all countries, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Well guys with that, thank you everyone for contributing and I don't know what calendar you guys are on, uh, but tomorrow is, we're doing uh, Shavuot, uh, Pentecost tomorrow, so it's a high Sabbath for us, which is fun to get two Sabbaths in a row. Um, I was going to say really quickly that for anyone left in the room, and maybe this will go on recording, I need to start a recording addressing this sometime, because there, for some reason, I'm getting a lot of, as you guys know, I'm a seventh day Sabbath keeper, obviously which would be, you know, the, the, every seven days it lands on Saturday. And I, I think it's a big, um, uh, it's a straw man argument to say that's worshipping the Gregorian calendar. It's not, it's literally every seven days, guys, seven, seven. So it's in the word Sabbath, seven. Anyways, uh, I have this reputation, apparently, amongst a lot of the lunar Sabbath crowd that I preach against them. Um, And we're having people coming over into this community and trying to cause uh, turmoil. And I want to point out, and I'm going to start a recording sometime talking about this. I want to point out, I'm not trying to get anyone to pat me on the head. But if you go to the front page of my website, the Unexpected Cosmology, I have on there a whole section devoted to the solar lunar Sabbath. Okay. To the point that I have people calling me up like other Torah leaders, and go, Noel, what's going on? Have you converted to the solar lunar Sabbath? Why am I seeing all these articles on your website upholding it? All right, so I have. I bring over on on my website. I invite Diane Cover, who is probably, well, I won't say she is. She's one of the. She is a solid author who is one of the most known in the world. Uh, she. Th- this is the reason why Zen Garcia has said he has never written a book on this. I bring her over to give all her points. She writes original articles for this website on why she follows the lunar solar Sabbath. I have nothing to hide. I like the research out there. I want it to be out there. Uh, and I, I, as I've said many times before, I like when people have research in a different area because if I find that I'm wrong in a certain area, I find that my position is no longer correct. I have research to fall back upon. And so I put this out there to the community that just show that I just for research purposes. So I want to tell the solar lunar Sabbath crowd that I am not hostile towards their position. I try to offer um, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to erase anything or scrub their research. Uh, but I just ask that because I am this that unexpected cosmology is officially um, a Seventh-day Sabbath ministry, which is my perfect right to do so, that you guys, when you guys come over here, that you just uh, don't fall in contempt of court. What I define as contempt of court is you show up to a ministry to be hostile to them because they are not your special interest group. Um, so anyways, all that to say is um, uh, I'm not hostile to the other view. Um, I, I We have a room for that in here. where you can come in and discuss it and so on and so forth. Anyways, guys, uh, tomorrow's my high Sabbath, and I enjoyed speaking with all of you tonight and hearing from you guys. And hopefully it was uh, uh, first Clement was uplifting to you guys. It was to me. I really enjoyed it. And we will do this again. So see you guys next week. Next week, we'll do the Aramaic Targum. Shalom, everybody. I am signing out for the night. Shalom.
1: Shalom, Shalom. Shalom. and on top.
4: Uh, You know, the months have changed, the weeks have changed, the names of everything have changed, but one thing that has never changed is the days of the week. The seventh day is still the seventh day.